we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. I bought the water purifying system. So check it out. 
go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Click on the display in the upper left-hand corner for My Patriot Foods. Be prepared. Do it today. All right, and welcome to another adventure here on Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Global Enlightenment Radio, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Facebook, Band on YouTube, also on iHeartRadio and half a dozen other places. You can also watch our show live by going to either Facebook or our webpage, which is Southern Sense. Just put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the Radio Chicky D, Annie, along with my co-host, the courageous and also prolific, prolific writer, if I can say that three times fast, Curtis C.S. <laughs> Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? Well, as you know, I'm recovering from some surgery on my hand, so I'm, I'm feeling fine, and um, I'm looking forward to getting these um, these um, dress, this dressing off my hands so I can get back to doing the, my typing and whatnot, finishing my books, but I'm looking forward to today's show, no doubt. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about and a lot to do, and uh, we have... We have two majors that know each other, both from the United States Marine Corps, both retired. Major Scott Husing, uh, he's the best-selling author of Echo and Ramadi. I don't know if you were with me when I did his interview a couple of years ago. Uh, he is now with Save the Brave. Uh, one of the things he's doing, he started that when a dear friend of his, a veteran, had committed suicide. Um, and he, every year now, he does this Harley-Davidson ride across the country, starting in California and ending up here in the Carolinas. And he will be here near me on July 30th. So I intend, I, hopefully I will be able to do that to meet him finally in person. Uh, because on July 30th, I've got to be up in Columbia, South Carolina, for the South Carolina GOP convention, which for which I'm a delegate. And it's about two and a half hours from Columbia to Charleston, but I should be able to make it in time and then get home to take care of mom. But uh, we're going to have Scott Housing on talking about Save the Brave and veteran suicide. Uh, then we're going to be followed with his friend, uh, Major Fred Galvin, also USMC retired. He has a new book that came out just this past month in uh, June called A Few Bad Men. The true story of U.S. Marines ambushed in Afghanistan and betrayed in America. Followed by Steve Beeman, uh, who is a self-made millionaire, but he has this new thing to help small businesses. And in today's economy, with inflation uh, raising its ugly head and recession coming up, he's the man that the everyday individual as well as small business should be talking to to find out how they survive this Biden administration. And, of course, we're going to have our friend Mark Tapscott from the uh, Epoch Times, or as I say, the Epic Times, uh, his every biweekly uh, visit to us. And Heritage Center, uh, Heritage Foundation is sending us Brenda Heffera. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, she will be joining us talking about wokeness, uh, feminism, and all the other crazy things, the social engineering they're forcing on us, and what is the cost to our children in our society. So we have a lot to talk about, Curtis. A oh, heck of yeah. a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Thanks. Yeah. And the things that's going on in Washington and coming out of Washington, it never ceases to amaze me. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. 
So I want to say hi to those that are listening to us and watching us over on Facebook, as well as those. Oh, shoot, I didn't open up the chat room. Ah, <laughs> doy. I was wondering what was missing on, on the screen today. <laughs> Shame on me. <laughs> well, the chat room is now open here on Blog Talk Radio. In case anyone's wondering where the heck I went. I did say I had it all together. So we got the chat room open. Sorry, guys. I do see our friends up in there. My bad. <laughs> But you never know what happens. This is live radio. Live radio. You never know what happens. That's so that true. said, that said, so, uh, oh, yeah, we also have the chat open up on my homepage, Southern Sense, along with the video going on over there, too, as well as open up on Facebook. So check us out all over the place. That said, Curtis, um, every show we start is with a dedication to a fallen hero or heroes. But because today's show has a huge centering around uh, Major Houston's uh, ride from California to the Carolinas here to raise awareness for veteran suicide, today's dedication is going to be going out to special, to the memories of our fallen heroes who served in combat and those who died in suicide, still fighting battles that never left them. And I want to make a notation that this past week, uh, there is a special crisis line because now they're trying to start moving everything into these uh, 900 numbers, uh, three-digit numbers you dial for various things. They can now, anyone who feels they need help and maybe suicidal or a veteran who needs help, instead of dialing the normal crisis number, which is one 800 273 8255 and pressing 1. Now you only need to dial 988. It'll route through that 800 number and you will get the help you need in confidence. So please seek help. Reach out. Reach out with your hand and help is there for you. So today's show is dedicated uh, to those also that fell that are now remembered in the Save the Brave scholarship program, such as Corporal Calvin Spencer, United States Marine Corps, Lance Corporal Andrew Mattis, United States Marine Corps, Lance Corporal Emilian, USMC, Corporal Andrew Marari, USMC, Major Greg Trevers, also USMC, Sergeant Christopher Yansky, USMC, and Sergeant Simon Lotke, USMC, as well as all the other brave men and women that served our nation in combat and came home battling even more wounds and who fell by the wayside and felt so desperate to commit suicide. The Washington Examiner wrote an article back in 2019, and it reads, it was, read, it was written by Russ Reed, about 6,000 veterans have committed suicide every year for nearly a decade, according to a new government report. Veterans Affairs 2019 Suicide Prevention Report highlights the suicide crisis that the department has been trying to stem for years. It found the veteran suicide rate was 1.5 times the rate of non-veterans, with approximately 6,000 veterans killing themselves each year between 2008 and 2017. Think about that. 
Over a 10-year period, 60,000 veterans lose their lives to suicide. And how many more walked before them? This is an epidemic, folks, and this is what we're here to address today. Data is an integral part of our public health approach to suicide prevention, VA Secretary Robert Wilkie said in a statement. The latest data offers insights that will help us build networks of support and research-backed suicide prevention initiatives to reach all veterans, even those who do not and may never come to us for care. The report notes that while the number of suicides among veterans rose by 6.1% from 2005 to 2017, the number among the general adult population rose by nearly 44%. VA officials have pointed to this alarming trend in their prevention efforts, emphasizing that the suicide epidemic is a national crisis that affects the military and non-military communities. There is no all-encompassing explanation for suicide, the report says. However, the VA has identified some key factors among victims who were enrolled in the Veteran Health Administration. Those who were homeless had higher rates of suicide, for example, while those with military-related service disability status may have a lower risk compared with other patients. Social isolation was also found to be a major indicator with higher suicide rates among those who were divorced, widowed, or never married. Veterans with sleep disorders, pain diagnosis, brain injury, and mental health issues also had higher rates. The VA continues to struggle with high-profile scandals that caught attention of senior lawmakers. Most recently, the daughter of a cancer-stricken veteran living in a VA facility found that ants, feasted on her father shortly before he died earlier this month. The VA has instituted several programs in the last few years to provide mental health and suicide prevention services to veterans. The VA has found that of the 20 veterans dying from suicide each day, only six have been cared for by the VA in some capacity. VA leaders are now working to spread the word about the services available to veterans by partnering with community groups, faith-based organizations, and local government. And as I spoke earlier of the transition to the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, it began this past Saturday. Actually, t- no, it begins this Saturday. This Saturday it begins. And this was up on blackenterprise.com and it was written by their editors. This Saturday, the U.S. transitions to the 10-digit National Suicide Prevention Lifeline to 988, an easy-to-remember three-digit number for the 24-7 crisis care. The lifeline, which also links to the Veterans Crisis Line, follows a three-year joint effort by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Federal Communication Commission, and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs to put crisis care more in reach for people in need. This initiative is part of President Biden's comprehensive strategy to address our nation's mental health crisis and is identified by U.S. Health and Human Services' Xavier Becerra as a top priority at HHS. Since January 2021, 
the Biden-Harris administration has made unprecedented investments to support the 988 transition, investing $432 million to scale crisis center capacity and ensure all Americans have access to help during mental health crises. The National Suicide Hotline Designation Act signed into law after the passage of the bipartisan, part, bipartisan legislation in 2020 authorized 988 as a new three-digit number for suicide and mental health crisis. All telephone service and text providers in the U.S. and the five major U.S. territories are required by the FCC to activate 988 no later than July 16, according to a press release. 988 is more than a number. It's a message we're there for you. Through this and other actions, we are treating mental health as a priority and putting crisis care in reach of more Americans, was noted on the HHS website. So, folks, don't be afraid to reach out for help. Don't be afraid to reach out for that hand to help you. If you feel a need, if you know someone in need, give them the 988 number. Or have them call the 1-800 number, which is still in service and will be. It's 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or tell them simply to dial 988. So today's show is dedicated to the memories of our fallen heroes who served in combat and those who died to suicide, still fighting battles that never left them. To our brave military men and women who saw combat. But we also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women that served our nation from its birth through today and into our hopeful future. We also dedicate this show to the brave men and women that serve here at home and still battle the fires at home. The men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. To them, we dedicate the song by my friend, Todd Ellen Herndon. My name is America. Don't give up. We're still here in for the fight. May God bless each and every one.
gave it to me They believe in the virtues I stand for I respect for humanity Now I'm challenged by tyrants Who envy my power But they're vicious deep Become my finest Radio chick with the least a D. <laughs> My co-host Curtis C. S. Bennett. Uh, Curtis, um, I got a friend of mine, Doug, that sent some really wacky stuff here. Um, like let me see what? if I can pull up. Oh, uh, he he did a bunch of these little parodies, and I've got to, I've got to play one of these. Can you imagine what the conversation was in the room when Joe Biden told Kamala Harris? Uh, that he wanted her to be his vice president. All right, I'm going to play this clip that he sent me. It's funny. Some of the stuff he did is really funny. So this is from my friend Doug Cushing. Uh, So thanks, Doug. Here we go. Hey, Lord, you made many, many people politicians. I realize it's no big thrill to be vice president, but the pay is not bad either. All day long just twiddling my thumbs If I were the VP man I wouldn't have to work hard I would go to funeral, shake a couple hands And then I'm done If I was the second in command I would be a very idle man (laughs) (laughs) 
one that's going around on the internet. I don't know how many people seen Weekend at Bernie's, but, you know, the the two guys are propping up this this, this dead person named um, Bernie. And um, there's something out with um, Joe, Biden. Joe Biden propped up by um, Kamala Harris yeah. and um, that other woman that likes to get her hair done when nobody else can. <laughs> <laughs> Need I say who? <laughs> weekend, weekend at Joe's. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot to talk about because uh, uh, Uncle Joe came down with COVID, and he's the one that's telling everyone to get all the shots and get the boosters and wear your mask. And do you see him wearing a mask? No. Uh, hello, masks don't work. Hey, don't worry, I'm already banned on YouTube, so I can basically say whatever I want and tell them, ma I okay. hope no one talks Italian. <laughs> oh. uh, that's the way I get banned on Twitter now. <laughs> oh, well, I'll just call up Elon Musk. Hey, get me back on. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard but, anything know, about that deal lately. I know he's they're they trying to sue him. But to me, if they try to sue uh, Musk, he could say, look, you know, I asked for some information on the um, the numbers that they claim to have um, as um, participants in their program, and they refused to give it to me. So I don't know how well, which they is plan which, to do him. Well, he's scheduled to go to court. The, the court date is scheduled um, for October. He was hoping to have it done for next year, uh, but the judge, who happens to be a friend of his, he knows the judge, uh, said, no, oh. we're going to move this up to October. So that's where he stands right now. So we're going to see what happens with the court case. And, you know, sooner or later, it's going to come down to a negotiation. You know that. Yeah. Unfortunately. So we'll we'll see what happens. And whether or not it makes uh, the social networking a little bit better in the long run, we'll wait and see. So... That's what we got right now. We're waiting for um, Scott to call in. He should be calling in any moment now um, as we talk about his ride, Save the Brave. So uh, he should be here any second, hopefully. And uh, as we said, we were talking about uh, Joe having the COVID, and they're giving him all this uh, medication. I forget what the heck they call this. And I was watching some of the doctors saying that, you know, there's a lot of side effects to this medication they're giving him. It's only given in extreme cases, blah, 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 blah. And yet, when you had the everyday American that was in the hospital looking for these very therapeutic treatments, these very, very same drugs, they were being denied and they were dying. So it's amazing how suddenly this is the new miracle drug to treat COVID and all the other strains of COVID. And yet, we the people are denied access to it. It's okay for everyone else to walk around um, without the masks, but yet we are given the mandate once again to lock down and wear masks when we know neither one works. This is all about control, folks. It's not about controlling a disease, but about control. And did you catch that right now, 
in the first time in more than a decade, there's a case of polio that popped up in New York. Now, isn't it amazing that things like leprosy, uh, tuberculosis, uh, smallpox, measles, and now polio are suddenly on the rise? Gee, I wonder if that has anything to do with an open, porous border. You think? Yeah, you know, there were some things that happened, thought to have been eradicated or even minimized, uh, like smallpox, but they started reappearing in America, well, the United States, uh, once these um, um, illegals start coming here, the influx of illegals. And it's like, you know, it's just simple math. You know, one and one is two. You can figure it out why the increase in these diseases that we had not seen on a large scale in decades. But they, they, they don't want to admit to that, you know. No, they don't. They, they do not want to admit to it at all. You know, they don't have to be vaccinated, but in order for you and I to get on an airplane... We have to be vaccinated or show a vaccination. Well, I know a lot of airlines are loosening that. In order to get onto a New York subway city car, subway car, you have to wear a mask. It's all the crazy rules for thee, but not for me, is what is coming out of this administration. You know, we have to pay taxes. uh, We have to follow all the rules. And government says... You've got to do what we say. But if you're an illegal, oh, tell us where you want to go. Um, uh, we're not going to put a monitoring bracelet on you. Or we're just going to give you the cell phone, which we know you're going to throw away anyway, and transport you to anywhere you want to go within the United States, courtesy of the taxpayer die. You know, it, it, this, this is an upside-down world. And one of the things we're going to talk about to one of our guests is um, – the young generation that got Biden elected, those under 30 that came out in mass for him, they're abandoning him big time, big, big time. They're leaving. They're saying, we're not, we don't want Joe to run again. We don't want him back in the White House. Everything he promised us was a lie. And they're waking up and smelling the coffee. So something tells me if we don't get off our butts and help generate our side getting to the polls, then it's going to be our fault there's not a red wave tsunami coming through this November. We've got to get those young people out there and say, hey, listen, that wasn't working for you. What was going on before was working for you. You had a job. You had a good income. Prices were low. Gasoline was below $2 a gallon. And now what are you paying? $5? Now come on over to our side. Well, we got our first victim in on the phone, and he's by no ways a victim, but I'm going to tease him anyway. Scott Husing, who is with Save the Brave, Major Scott Husing, USMC, URA, retired. Good afternoon, Scott. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, it's still morning here in California. I just uh, I got my first 100 miles under my belt for the Ride for the Brave as I Blaze across the country to South Carolina, Annie. So thanks for having me on. Yeah. Now it's my pleasure. You know, you started your ride today. And as a matter of fact, today's dedication, I don't know if you want to go back and replay the start of this later on when you do park your bike. 
was to the memories of our fallen heroes who served in combat and those who died to suicide, still fighting battles that never left them. So we did a nice dedication uh, to them to start the show off, to get people going and knowing about services out there like the new 988 uh, crisis hotline number that ties into the 800 number. But you're here doing this uh, for a reason. You've, this is now, I think, the second or third year you're doing this? Third year. We've uh, we started uh, two years ago when uh, my good friend Dave White committed suicide and his mom asked me to come to South Carolina and give the eulogy and hide to COVID. No flight. Hopped on my Harley. That year, I drove across the country and back and rode 5,150 miles. But uh, I got about another... 3,000 miles this year, and uh, we'll be in Charleston on Saturday the 30th. But the ride itself for SaveTheBrave.org, and for anyone listening, go to SaveTheBrave.org, click on the event, ride for the brave, and donate, because our goal this year is $100,000. We're $30,000 there already, and we've only got 100 miles in our belt. So the support and has been phenomenal, and we really count on it. And, you know, when I talk about the word support, I think it's important because every society has had a warrior culture in their history, from the Samurais to the Spartans, Apaches, to our modern-day military. And whenever those warriors go out and fight and defend and protect what they love, what they left behind, those men and women and children that send them out always open the gate. And when they return, welcome them, understanding, oh, well, what they had to do was not easy. But they really make it easier for them to integrate. And I think that's the message we need to share in America with the other 99% of our country is these veterans that come home that are still struggling, despite whatever war it is, they're just like us. They're like everybody else. We, we bred them, raised them educated them, but there's a very small segment that actually are willing to fight and do what we do. And I'm just proud to be out here connecting those veterans and and people, thousands of people across the country to share that message and and have them donate and provide us the resources at savethebrave.org so we can continue to help and do our mission. Well, there's, there's a couple of different ways people can donate. They can either mail you a check, which you have an address on there, along with your 501c3 designation, um, they can go directly online and make a donation through the uh, services that you have, which is what I did yesterday. And I also put a little dedication in there with my donation, if you want to take a look. Or um, you have that where they can uh, do the wish list, and it was geared towards some of the things that you do for the veterans, programs that you have out there, such as taking them on fish trips or helping them learn and pro- uh, uh, Oh, good Lord. My brain fart just kicked in. Become more proficient in jujitsu. Uh, different things that you do there. It, uh, these donations can go towards. So not only did I give you a monetary donation, I hit the wish list, and I got the uh, SIM card, the memory card, as well as the Go camera. So That's I, awesome. I got you free time. <laughs> <laughs> you're the best. But you're, you're another example and we try and create ways that people can can give of not just their money. And, and the donations are great. They're certainly needed, and we, we wouldn't be able to survive without them. But so many people come out and donate their time. They volunteer. There's a lot of ways to donate. And 
sometimes people ask me, well, how do I donate? How do I get involved? And I always remind people, just be great at what you're great at. And I think that's a real real solution, whether you own a bakery or a real estate agency or you run a talk radio show. Just do that <laughs> and find a way to do it. And it's the best. And it, it, it really makes it simple for me because that way no one's creating work for me because we got a lot on our plate, um, not just with the nonprofit, but, you know, we all have day jobs and lives and, and everything else that we got to manage. And we do this for SaveTheBrave.org. We're all volunteers, 100% of every dollar goes back to veteran programs, and that's something we're extremely proud of. Major. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Curtis. Um, co-host. Anyway, I, I served in Desert Storm of War, and um, I think I was over there for about six months. And it, it is long, and um, you're away from your family, um, and 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 your friends for a long time. And and sometimes well back in those days, you know, we didn't have um we didn't have email and stuff like that. You had snail mail. And I, I, I knew a few people who committed suicide because they wouldn't get a letter or mail call, which was a very important um e- event of the day, mail call. And those who didn't get letters, they would you know, walk away looking real solemn and feeling, sometimes feeling dejected. And I, I can see how people would feel um, down and out being away from friends and families, not getting any mail, not feeling appreciated when they do come home from these wars and deciding that, the, you know, they need to commit suicide. Um, I think things have improved some, but I'm not sure you know, about how much, because we still have people committing suicide. And now we fight wars that don't seem like wars. So it's like we don't realize we got people over there fighting. And, um, you know, you come home, there's no big hurrah, no parades or anything, like it was during Desert Storm. And, of course, we all know about the the, the folks that served in Vietnam. They came home and were uh, attacked and ridiculed and called baby killers and things like that. But I don't know, it's just the, the the game of warfare has changed so much that it's, like I said, it doesn't seem like we have war anywhere. Well, I think that, you know, again, everything's cyclical. Uh, you know, we go through this time and again. You know, every generation has gone through this, and I'm sure that our World War II and Vietnam vets and Desert Storm vets look at our modern-day military today and see some of the changes, but... You know, we've adapted and changed throughout the years, and the type of wars that we fight now are a little bit different. Um, you know, it's a very three-dimensional uh, battle that we fight. It's very asymmetric. Um, sometimes the enemies don't wear uniforms. Um, we've got the cyber threat. That's probably the most significant thing that we face as a military and as a nation to really keep our guard up. So, you know, we're happy to, you know, evolve and, and and change a little bit. I don't think anybody's really scared of that. And I have a lot of faith in the young men and women who wear the uniform today and our first responders because I think a lot of people don't realize when they're bashing millennials or, or Gen Zers, it's like, these are the people man in the rails of these ships, Curtis. And these are the people in the ER, if you cut your hand open, they're going to sew you up. So just keep that in mind. And I, I sleep well at night knowing that uh, 
the young men and women who are defending our country on every front are more than capable because I wouldn't sleep well if, if I hadn't trained that generation myself. So I, I'm pretty comfortable in that fact. And I think those that transition out of the military should be cognizant of that. You train these men and women, your time, you know, holding the sword is, is over. Just have some faith and then give back and make sure you share your stories with them. Yeah. That's, I think that's very, very important to reach out and make sure, which is what you do. Uh, there's a lot of different things you also do because with the families that are left behind, you also help them too. Uh, tell us about the scholarship program and how that came about. Absolutely. Uh, the Save the Brave scholarship program was designed to take care of the children of veterans who committed suicide. And as I'm out here riding across the country, Pete Turner's with me, and he was there the first year with me. He rode across the country and, and followed me in his pickup truck, dropped everything he's doing. And that was for Dave. And last year, Pete's brother, who's a Marine, Eric, committed suicide up in the Bay Area in California. And we're awarding the first scholarship, $10,000, to Eric's daughter, uh, who's a student at Cal State. And we're going up there August 14th at the Marine's Memorial Club because you know, when, when people kill themselves, we, we really don't have any warning. We don't try and do the math on the, figuring out the why, but we are very keen to focus on the families that are left you know, just, you know, drowning in this wake of tragedy. And we cannot forget about them because they're still alive. We can still help them. There's thousands of veterans out there that we'll never even know if, if we saved them. We're just, we're just very comfortable knowing that we're doing our small part in the sea of veteran service organizations, over 45,000 registered with the IRS. And what I do as the executive director at SaveTheBrave.org, I'm just one small part of a great team that supports what we do. And, you know, we're going to continue to make an impact across the country. We're going to continue to make an impact in veteran lives. We're going to continue to share this story so people understand that whatever it is you do, you can make a difference. Yeah, because you have your executive board up on, on the, the SaveTheBrave.org website. Um, you also have listing uh, the uh, Marines that you have the scholarships named after uh, to help the families and the children of these suicide veterans. Um, but you also explain, you know, what happens with the donation, whether or not you'll get a receipt, exactly where the money goes. And I love this because... My mother made a donation to a veteran organization, and they sent her one of these blankets. And you say you'll never see a a blanket or a Super Bowl commercial or, or, or like that or paying com- uh, celebrities. <laughs> but that's what this one organization yeah, I, did. I, yeah, the, the, well, the blanket came in, and, of course, God bless my mother. I mean, I thought I was highly conservative. <laughs> she goes, I would have met, never made a donation if I knew the blanket came from China. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I have a strict anti-swag policy uh, when it comes to sending out trivial gifts and, and thank yous. I, I think just saying thank you is enough. And I, I think as, as a donor myself that gives to not only my own charity, but to other uh, charities that are not veteran-related, um, you know, I don't want any of that stuff because every single thing that you send out like that, every single stamp you have to mail out, it costs money. And for me, 
that's not being a good steward of donor funds. And, you know, we need to be hyper aware of that because we want to continue to provide as much service to those in our community that we can. And uh, we're, we're just really sensitive to that. So, you know, uh, I think people that want to understand, uh, you know, what the great charities are, um, you know, do the research first or ask someone that's donated or if you've got a question about what we do, you can email us. You can go on our website, savethebrave.org, or just email us at info at savethebrave.org, and we'll, we'll make sure that your questions are answered on where your money goes. But we're completely transparent with everything we do. Well, also there's the Charity Navigator. People can just Google Charity Navigator. And whenever I have a question about if I should be donating to someone or my mom should be, I always double-check it. And if it doesn't have a 90 above rating, they don't see a penny of my money, period. Uh, One of my favorites besides yours is Tunnels of Towers, too. Yeah. Well, what people need to know, too, is the the – the guide stars and the charity navigators, those are services that you actually have to have X amount of dollars in the bank to get rated on, or you have to pay for that service. And again, I don't need charity navigator to tell me I'm a great nonprofit. If you want to find out, you can go to the irs.gov and type in our tax ID number and look at our tax returns. You'll see where every single penny is spent. And what what's more is those services also are very uh, quantitative. They, they look solely at the numbers and, and where that goes. What we do at SaveTheBrave.org, it's very qualitative. We're very focused on how our services impact people. And that metric of success that we use is based off of the feedback and testimonials from those people that attend our events, that go on the fishing programs, the guys that get on the mat in our new jiu-jitsu program with six blades and that's how we measure success. So a lot of times, you know, you, you might have to dig a little deeper and, and ask those questions of the nonprofit that you're donating your, your time or your, or your money to because that's important. That is. That is. Um, I'm looking at the messages as they're popping up in the chat rooms, uh, but everyone's liking what they're hearing. Uh, one of the things you do have also is the um, R&R. You have uh, the R&R for the Brave. Now, I noticed that you had a week-long itinerary up there. Is that for this coming year in September? Because there was no year on it. Uh, I'd have to check. I'm I'm standing at a casino gas station right now in the middle of the desert. But uh, (laughs) I I don't have it memorized right now. But uh, we we have a great web team. Everything is, is current on the website right now. Uh, but we also have a partner on the website, Patriot Vacation Rentals. They provide cabins uh, up in Big Bear, California, Lake Arrowhead, and uh, just another Marine veteran who, again, he's being great at what he's great at. He manages vacation rentals, and he creates these opportunities because we want to have opportunities for families as well. So not everyone wants to go out on the boat with a bunch of guys and cook fish and, and do that. So we find other ways to do it, and I think that's uh, that's something we're lucky to have. Yeah, because I was looking at the itinerary that was up here. Uh, I'm assuming this is something past, but not only do you have, you know, dinners where people get together, uh, yoga sessions, meditation to help them with their mental, uh, hiking, uh, rafting, there's a clinic, there's a barbecue, um, there's different types of sports that people can uh participate in i see at one point bungee jumping 
I'm sorry. Uh, I have something about diving out into the middle of the air <laughs> with only a rope around my waist. <laughs> and I also don't jump out of perfectly good airplanes. <laughs> so uh, me and heights don't get along too well. But uh, how do well, you pick out what cities focused. to stop in, too? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I, the, well, the cities and the route, I'll answer that question, are uh, based off of my initial planning when I started this ride. I had 16 days to plan the first ride, and I just did a map study. I figured out how many hours a day I could ride, calculated the miles, and we picked good cities, and we reached out to local small businesses who own restaurants because uh, we wanted a place for all the riders to meet and drink and eat and have some entertainment. And what's happened over the last three years is that's grown and grown and grown. And a lot of the cities that host us now, every city wants to welcome us in. They create a special day or they do a Save the Brave brew and all the proceeds from that brew go back to Save the Brave and they all cut checks and donate along the way. It's just a, a really cool uh, culture that we've created and, and been welcomed aboard by these small businesses in every single town we stop in. And again, we just picked the cities based off of the, the route planning. And I get asked the question a lot, why would I get on my Harley in July and ride across the Southern route of the United States in triple digit weather? And I always tell people, again, you know, the month, picked me. I didn't pick the month. I didn't, I didn't choose when Dave killed himself, and, and that was worn out of necessity. But I'll tell you, I say it happy, happily and, and, and with a smile on my face, is that the, that route and the ride at this time of the year has become kind of a metaphor, and I think that people should suffer a little bit to be reminded and, and face the heat and the wind and sometimes rain along this route uh, this, this month. Because there's a lot worse things in life that people are dealing with, with depression and, and anxiety and stress, and not just veterans. Everybody deals with that stuff in life. And we're out here on our Harleys getting some wind therapy, so it's pretty cool to be able to do that and meet thousands of amazing Americans along the way. It's just, it's just something we're, we're really happy to do and really be a unifying force as we ride across the country and connect people. And I think that last year I kind of lost focus of that as I was focusing on our goal to raise money. And it took my, my, my partner and president of State the Brave, Nick Velez, who fought under my command, to remind me when we hit Florida, he said, hey, sir, don't worry about the money. We got enough money this trip. You have connected thousands of people, and that's our mission. And he was right. It, but, it, you know, sometimes you just have to be grabbed by the neck and shaken around a little bit to be reminded of that. And that's what we're doing every single day out here, and it, it really makes me happy. Major. Well, I'm glad to, glad to be a little bit of a help here. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah. In your travels, you have met a lot of people, I'm sure. Um, have you ever come across someone who was a combat veteran and told you they, they had once considered or contemplated suicide? but they changed their mind, and did they tell you why? We, we had a, a Navy corpsman that rode out with us last year. Uh, he and I are on the cover of San Diego Veterans Magazine from the November issue last year, and Doc fully admitted, he says, look, I've, you know, I didn't even want to go on this ride, and they built this bike for him with the sidecar and sandbags in it, 
so he could ride because he's paralyzed. And he got on his bike and he rode. And he said, man, this, this changed me. And we're going to pick him up here uh, tomorrow when we hit Tucson. But Pete Turner as well, he admits it on his podcast, The Break It Down Show, every single day he's, he's thinking about taking his own life. But the, it's events like these and being connected that fuel him to stay in the fight. You know, there's there's a lot of different reasons why people would want to take their life, and you can never put everyone in one bowl. There's there's so many different reasons, whether it's something they saw, whether it's a, a traumatic brain injury or other physical injury, uh, mental illness, uh, being isolated, especially during the pandemic, being homeless. Uh, there's so many different scars and so many different ways combat veterans can be scarred. You, you can't say it's one thing and say, well, this one bandage is going to fix everything. So you have a huge uphill battle here getting that message out, don't you? Well, well, what we're doing out here, when, when all these people show up, what's great about it is they're not talking about politics or who they voted for. They're out here to try and fix and solve this problem. And, and being together and, and being out here, I think, really shows everybody that what works for one may not work for another, but we're trying to be part of that solution to the problem for veterans suicide. And when people see that, I think it inspires them to do more or at least get out, force themselves out so they stay connected. And that's what we're doing. So you guys are part of the solution too by having us on the show. I, I just want to say thanks. Uh, and I love you guys. You're the best. I've known you since my book came out and, 2018, and we got uh, 347 miles left, and uh, my crew's giving me the symbol. But I just wanted to say thanks for having me on the program today, guys, and uh, I can't wait to see you. Well, yeah, I'll see you. Uh, I'm going to be flying like a bat out of hell because that day is the South Carolina GOP convention up in Columbia. So I've got to go from Beaufort three hours up to Columbia, attend the convention, bug out of there to get to your event, which starts at 3.30, but I figure I'll get there by 4.30 and then come back down to Buford. <laughs> so That's I'll be awesome. putting some mileage on my car. But I will make it over there. I, I guarantee that unless something happens to me. If you don't see me there, then you know something bad happened. <laughs> but i got to yeah, tell well, I'm you. I'm looking uh, forward to it. Well, you and I have been friends since I had you on with your book, Echo and Ramadi, and I can't believe it's been four years already. But also, you're the book publicist for your friend who's on next, Major Fred Galvin. How'd you manage to get involved I, yeah. with that? Uh, well, I'm not his publicist. I'm, I'm, I guess he'd call me his agent. I was happy to be a part of that project when I, the story was shared with me and know some people in the publishing industry where I actually helped get the book sold. And I've done that for Andy Biggio, who I think might have been on your show with the rifle and Fred's and a couple other veteran authors. I just love sharing great stories. So I try and do my part and uh, maybe branch out a little bit, break up uh, my, my daily routine. But uh, I, I just, I, I just really believe that those are important stories and helping people at the beginning. And so I will well, God see bless you, you for the hard Saturday work to do. and at, at yeah, I'll see you on yep. Saturday at 4.30, and I just want to say thanks again to you guys. Well, God bless. Saturday the 30th, not this Saturday. Next Saturday. <laughs> Next Saturday the 30th, that's right. And you can follow the ride every single day on Instagram 
at Save the Brave Org on Instagram or Save the Brave on Facebook. And then to all the listeners out there, I just want to say thank you. I'm looking forward to hitting South Carolina at the end of it again this year. And go to SaveTheBrave.org and make a small contribution or create a team and do a little mini fundraiser of your own, and that's how you can make a difference this time around. Well, God bless, Scott, and drive safe. You ride safe out there. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Semper Fi. All right. Semper Fi. All right. Uh, Major Scott Houston on SaveTheBraid.org. Please go to the website and make a small donation if you can. Um, even $5, anything to help him reach that 100000 And he's going to be – here's some of the cities he's going to be in. He's right now um, heading towards Tucson, Arizona, and he'll leave tomorrow morning from Tucson to go El Paso, Texas. And he leaves from there the following morning, and he'll be heading to Odessa, Texas, uh, then to Corinth, Texas, uh, Bartonville, uh, from Bartonville to Houston, Houston to New Orleans, uh, New Orleans to Alabaster, Alabama, from there to Fairburn, Georgia, and from Fairburn, Georgia, finally to Charleston, South Carolina, where I will get a chance to finally meet him. That's exciting, Curtis. Very exciting. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. I wish I could meet these guys. Yeah, yeah well, you take a ride up here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I meant to ask him, um, he's riding a bike across the country, um, uh, I want to ask him, and I forgot, uh, what does he do when it, like, rains real bad? Just <laughs> you keep on riding. You under, find that bridge, you those... duck underneath that bridge, you wait out the store, yeah, and you get back on, and you keep on going. Yep. Wow. Amazing. Yep. yep. Trust me, I've done that a few times. Yes, I used to ride a motorcycle. Believe it or not, yes, I did. It wasn't a Harley. It was a Yamaha, but it was a Yamaha that looked a lot like a Harley, and it was a sweet little thing. Wow. And I rode it in New York, going up I and down. Doing the state. Now. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. Matter of fact, I'm putting the Save the Brave information for Scott aside because I think I'm going to be shooting that out to my Tea Party members, see if we can get ourselves a little fundraiser going and, uh, and see if we can raise some money for him. I mean, it's, it's a good cause. I mean, um, I've lost some friends to suicide. Um, People I knew in high school, uh, there's some that I'd worked with in NYPD. Um, there was one point where I drove uh, 45 minutes from my home on Long Island to a fellow officer's house because he was suicidal. was able, thankfully, to get him help, um, and he's still happy, healthy today. Thank God, knock on wood. So when you are dealing with someone who is suicidal, um, be gentle, be calm, um, and try to get them the best help you can. And uh, yeah, just don't like leave their side. That's, that's important. Don't, but don't leave their side. Stay with them. Because the longer you stay with them, the more you have a chance of talking them into seeking help. Because when you walk out that door and you say, well, I talked to him, I gave him the information, now it's up to him or her, that's when you're going to lose the person. So it's very, very important that you stay by their side until they finally pick up their phone and they finally make that phone call. And just give them the love and support. Yeah, like I said, there seems to be an ongoing problem within law enforcement, um, suicide. 
well, with the defund the police and everything else, and now what's going on with social engineering left and right, it's very understandable. But we've got another uh, victim. <laughs> I should never call a Marine a victim. They'll probably beat the crap out of me. <laughs> Major oh, Fred oh. Galvin, welcome back to the show, Major Fred. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me again. again. All right. We just hung up with Scott. He's got back on his bike and he's heading out towards Arizona right now uh, for his Save the Brave ride. And I will be meeting him on the 30th when he hits Charleston here in South Carolina. That's going to be so cool. You have a new book out. The last time we were talking to you, um, I, was it last year? I, was it really? Um, you were trying to sue the uh, military to get the rank that they denied you. Um, but now you have a book that you wrote about the whole incident uh, called A Few Bad Men, the true story of U.S. Marines ambushed in Afghanistan and betrayed in America. It is a riveting book. And I have to admit, I've got about three-quarters of the way through, but I already knew the story, so I'm following it. And I've got tons of notes to talk to you about. Uh, this is the story about what happened to you and your unit. And it was... I, you know me, I don't normally curse, but it was a clusterfuck from the very beginning, wasn't it? To use those correct technical terms, yes, it was, Anne. And this story, as you mentioned, different than A Few Good Men. This is a nonfiction story that actually did happen to the Marine Special Operations Task Force that I was uh, commanding in Afghanistan at the time. and We were ambushed in a complex ambush car bomb blew this van off uh, right at the front of our patrol. It was filled with fuel, shrapnel, uh, blasting three directions, and then we got shot at from both sides of the road, sniper fire coming in on us. Uh, the mob formed in front of us. They dragged a vehicle across the road, trapping us in this kill zone. And uh, we fired at the jihadists that were driving this vehicle, uh, with three of them hanging out of the vehicle, firing AK-47s, killed them. Then on the other side of the road, in a dry riverbed, it's, uh, we, there was two different formations. One would provide suppressive fire, while the other would bound towards us, and then they would move in these echelons, leaping uh, at us, and we made quick work of them. This was at 9 o'clock in the morning, and so there was no fog of war, confusion as to what was going on. Um, but we made quick work of them. We were still getting shot with a sniper fire. And um, it was on an elevated area that couldn't quite see it, but the impacts were hitting our vehicles. Um, it's ironic that the Army generals who were in charge of us said, you know, they should have stayed there and held the ground. And it's like, okay, if you were smart enough to figure out really what was going on or the purpose of our mission was to identify these four suicide bombers that we knew were in this village. We actually knew the actual home that they were in. So one detonated on us. There was three others there. We're getting hit with sniper fire. Uh, I don't know if General Frank Kearney has ever been in combat, but I, I do know he was in Central America, and uh, I'd love for someone to actually bring him on the show and, and ask him how he uh, cowered into the foxhole that he was in. But... Uh, while we were getting impacted, it was clear that uh, we're going to follow both the Marine Corps and the Special Operations standard operating procedures for a complex ambush is you counterattack, but you don't stay in the kill zone. 
So after five minutes, we departed as both Marine Corps Special Operations, they say, get out of the kill zone. Don't sit there and just take it and keep getting killed. Uh, but we returned to base, and that's when the information operations, that uh, Taliban spin cycle was only took them 20 minutes. Uh, so after Mr. Pearl, unfortunately, the reporter that was decapitated at the beginning of the war, they many, many media sources were employing Afghan locals to provide them with news. Well, how do you think that's going to go in a border town along the Afghan-Pakistan border that's controlled by the Taliban becomes propaganda. So that was in the news immediately, 20 minutes after our ambush. Um, rioting, uh, this was very well orchestrated. Even the president of Afghanistan publicly condemned us. The army generals that were in charge, and uh, they quickly buckled without even asking a single Afghan. The, even the first investigation, and we were kicked out. And then this was turned over to none other than Lieutenant General Jim Mattis, who was the convening authority that held the uh, investigation prior to the trial that we were involved in. This ended up being the longest war crimes trial in Marine Corps history for the war in Afghanistan, and the largest number of alleged Afghan civilians killed with machine guns. Uh, and they, they brought myself and one other Marine officer that was on the patrol with us, uh, as the defendants in this case, the two of us, we were tried, uh, we were exonerated, but some of the things that General Mattis allowed during that investigation and then his successor that uh, conducted the trial, you know, they strong-armed two of these Marines of Latino descent. One, his, uh, his family was threatened to be deported. And here he comes, legally immigrates as a child, legally becomes naturalized, legally joins the Marine Corps, his crime, and he decided that he wanted to serve his new country in a time of war, and comes over and takes the most demanding training that we have in the Marine Corps to become a force reconnaissance Marine, gets selected as a Marine commando in our first special operations task force, gets blown up, and they uh, squeeze him in an interrogation for 21 hours, threaten to deport his mom, and unless he signed their fabricated statement, he admits all this on the stand. This is all in the book, A Few Bad Men, and it's, again, nonfiction. But these Gestapo tactics have no place in the United States Marine Corps. This is uh, sick, and unfortunately it's never been fixed, and that's why I've been asking the Commandant of the Marine Corps to fix this. Um, you wonder why right now, and with two and a half months left, in the fiscal year for the Department of Defense, why we have only 50% of the recruiting goals for this year in the United States Army. All of our branches are suffering severely. People don't want to join. And the way we retreated out of Afghanistan and all these social engineering programs being shoved down everybody's throats, the forced jab in the, our military. I mean, I work at Tesla. Nobody's getting a forced jab or you lose your job. Uh, but uh, that's one way they're purging uh, a few good men, and more than just a few. But uh, all this is really impacting the morale and the military effectiveness of the United States of America. And we need to wake up right now while we can still do something about it. Um, so the first step, and is people need to go on Amazon, order the book, A Few Bad Men. This is a true story. 
not just if they love the combat action like people loved in the American Sniper from Iraq or Lone Survivor from Afghanistan, they will love this. Plus, this has the courtroom drama because it, is, it was a kangaroo court, but I, and I had to fight for 11 years to get this information declassified by using two attorneys going to federal court to have it. This was a garden variety gun battle, not Jason Bourne's knock list or submarines at sea's location. They had no reason to classify it, but every defense witness that would come in that courtroom, the colonel in charge of the court would send this into a classified session. They'd move all the media out. So although the jury heard every word, the military jury, you, we were left in the media being destroyed. After this was over, they said we got away with murder. They'd run these hit ads constantly. For, I went on to serve seven more years, and they even constantly did this to the day I retired. The day I retired, they hit another hit ad a real professional destruction that the Marine Corps never did a word to fix. Uh, we even had a House resolution passed in the 115th Congress by God rest his soul, Congressman Walter Jones from North Carolina. And uh, for those two years that he sponsored that and fought to uh, have this, all we were asking is for the Commandant of the Marine Corps to make a statement saying that the Marines and our Special Operations Task Force were not at fault in the ambush. Marine Corps just ignored it. General Neller, who was the commandant then, never said a single word. And that kind of leadership uh, still exists where the Marine Corps, this has been published last month, has not said a single word at all these officers to include one of these uh, commanding officers. His exact words, confirmed by my polygraph and the Department of the Navy that said this happened, was that he was willing to sacrifice the lives of his Marines. And uh, you see all this, you read all the comments that people have made in social media in the book, and they, they're like, this is disgusting. How could this have happened? It didn't just happen, Ann, but they got away with this. And they're right. still in circulation. Right. Absolutely, and absolutely. You know, it's funny because directly across the street from me is the Gold Star family. And when I was reading the book, it was like a gut punch to me um, because on page... 24, um, you wrote, unfortunately, there will not be any accountability in this life for those leaders who squandered nearly 20 years, lost 2,325 service members killed in action. When I read that portion, I looked across the street to my dear friends and neighbors. Their son, a United States Marine, lost his life in Afghanistan in 2006. Wow. Yes. Suffered and it's, uh, 20,000. Yeah. It, 705 wounded in action. Yeah, and these generals, and they wanted this war to be fought forever. Uh, they continuously, this this is not me saying this. I ask everybody to verify this. Go back and listen to all the congressional testimonies of everyone who was general officer and above testifying to Congress about the war in Afghanistan and how the training of the Afghan National Army was going so well, we must continue to con proceed with the investment and stay the course. And we saw everybody was saying, no, they, they can do it on their own. We're, we're going to withdraw. And it, we saw how fast this time last summer, just a year ago, that lie came unraveled and it, the Afghans were just being overran at the, the cyclic rate. I mean, they just constantly cities falling these generals lied 
for years to our elected so-called leaders, and there's been no accountability. Why? Why did we spend over $2 trillion, Ann, and nothing has happened? Mm. Look at where the current Secretary of Defense came from, Raytheon. Look at where the last Secretary of Defense that uh, President Trump had in there and fired General Mattis came from General Dynamics, went back to General Dynamics. These were both four-star generals, same way with uh, another Marine four-star general, General Dunford, retired a little over a year ago and went straight to Lockheed Martin. They are all on these boards because now to get in the Pentagon after it was blown up, you need badge access unless that's right, you're a four-star general. And then they go in there, so they buy all these generals, put them on their boards, they go in there, they push because they need a return on investment, and these generals are just the ones to do it. So the key you know, villains are you know, these defense firms who are the Geppettos of these generals who shamelessly go in there and tell these others what products, that missile systems and drones they need to continue to buy and how we need another war. And if America doesn't wake up and get concerned, it not just people focus on what they spend the most on, their house or their car, but look at where our taxes are going. When you take out entitlements, Social Security, welfare, look at non-discretionary spending. This is what we spend. The number one line item on the federal budget for non-discretionary spending is national defense. Has it won a war? Have our leaders been truthful to us? Have they, have they been moral? Or have they pushed this hearts and minds like they did in Afghanistan. I would say to General Mattis right now, who just got married this summer in his 70s, uh, which is fine, but if you push that for 20 years, which he did, even as Secretary of Defense, he was pushing to stay the course. How about you put some some skin in the game and send your bride to a bed and breakfast and bargain for your honeymoon? If, uh, if you would put that kind of skin in the game Maybe America should invest in the next war because, trust me, and there are people right now they in the Pentagon and in those defense firms they want a war with China. These are a few bad men in America. We need to wake up to steal a line and spin it a little bit from Jack Nicholson's uh, and a few good men. America, you can handle the truth, and you need to know what the truth is. You need to buy the book. A Few Bad Men. It's available on Amazon, either in Audible, so you can listen to it, or read it hardback or on Kindle. But you do need to know what happened and how it's been shamefully covered up, how the military is still not addressing any of this. They have not fixed the problem. And there is an ongoing case right now against three personnel in the Marine Special Operations Command who were tried last month, and they still... And have you ever heard of a verdict... Like in our case, it took them four months to reach a verdict. In this case, with the current three members of the Marine Special Operations Command, another case from Iraq, went on three and a half years ago. They were tried last month, and they're waiting for a convenient time to drop their verdict. But uh, it was a self-defense case. There was differences and similarities, but they defended themselves against a huge 275-pound guy that clubbed one Marine twice in the face, coming in a third time, and the Marine defended him with one punch. The guy fell backwards, hit his head. They took him to Germany. Yeah, I remember that. Died four days later, and and they're trying these guys, all three of them, to include the guy that was punched twice. And the, the medic who was 
they're providing first aid. All three of them have been charged mm-hmm. with homicide. And people don't believe this. This is going on. If you have something more important to do than making an effort to save the lives of three Marines or two corpsmen and a, two Marines and one Navy corpsman who've been wrapped up in this mess, I can't think of anything that's more important right now than to contacting your congressman, becoming aware of the MARSOC 3 case, and fighting for these guys. Major. Yeah, you were known as the MARSOC 7. Oh, Curtis, just hang on a second. There was yeah. something, though, that bothered me, because I was married to a gunny, mm-hmm. just to let you know. Ex-husband. Yes, you mentioned. Uh, uh, but one thing the Marine Corps had is that, yeah, you had your special operations, but you never had one that was not under command and control of the Marine Corps solely. And for some reason, somewhere in, up in the ivory tower, they said, well, no, you've got the Army, you've got the Navy, you've got the Air Force. We want to be able to control the Marine Corps, too. And the Marine Corps fought for a number of years, fought against it. And finally, you yes. were, you were char- tasked Scapegoat. with forming the first yes. MARSOC. And you write about this in your book, which I found was extremely unusual. Why would the Marine Corps give up that much control? But yet when you look at the new commandant of the Marine Corps now, who wants to, quote, modernize it, the Marines no longer are the first ones in. We're going to aim more towards technology than boots on the ground. There is a change in our military that's been going on for the last couple of decades, and this is really scary, Fred. You are right, and you know we're seeing it right now. What happened a year ago with our let's call for what it is, and it was a retreat, not like a summer retreat, but it next occurred month in the summer. One year. I'm talking one year that we left <laughs> Afghanistan in shame and embarrassment. What's happened since then? Well, Russia moved their forces to the border, the northern border of Kazakhstan. Oh, that's right. That's where Hunter Biden has a deal on gas and oil with Burisma, uh, getting paid $83,000 a month. And that happened right before Christmas. And the Christmas present, as Jen Psaki said, is President Biden was going to have a tough call with President Putin and set things straight. Well, I bet you how that tough call went was like, hey, Joe, I'm going to use my army, and it would be best that you sit this one out if your son wants that 83000 because I'll just take it. But we'll, we'll do action, right, and go into Ukraine, and you guys will still have your oil. Everything will be good. What did we see? Not, so they assembled along the Kazakhstan border. They withdrew, and then they invaded Ukraine. Why did they do that? Because they know we are perceived as completely feckless. We're weak. You're seeing these continuous launching of missiles out of North Korea again. That's not covered in the news. You're seeing these mass-scale amphibious operations by the People's Liberation Army and the People's Liberation Army Navy on the east coast of China getting ready, as we know, to push across the Straits of Taiwan. There's 96 miles. That'll happen quickly. And think about, Anne, how many thousands and tens of thousands of lives will be lost as we try to dislodge the People's Liberation Army from the island of Taiwan by doing amphibious and airborne operations. It's going to be a big, bloody, ugly war. And I'm not talking about fighting people wearing sandals, carrying weapons made, designed two years after the war, and 
World War II ended. I'm talking about fifth-generation fighters. I'm talking about swarms of drones. I'm talking about advanced technology and armies of over a million uh, that will fight us. Who will profit from that? We need to ask that question, and we need to see why we are being perceived so weak right now. Tehran's developed uh, the capability. They'll soon have a, you know, the, their enrichment of uranium is in full scale, and they'll have a weapon, and they'll use it. Uh, maybe, maybe, just maybe, Israel will do something. But, you know, when you have people, especially family members, who are profiting from oil deals and deals with the Chinese, and you wonder why we're selling our strategic oil reserves to China, and then we're going over and begging the Saudis to release more oil. It's Sometimes people get confused at why all this is happening unless you see the drug deals that are going on below the radar. Uh, mm-hmm. But it all starts with our military. Yeah. 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 Fentanyl I mean, that's being produced in China. And then they're shipping it over here to Mexico where they then transport it across yep. our border and killing our American citizens. You know, there's so many working parts that people don't understand. And you mentioned China, and we have allowed China to steal our technology. Why the heck were we having China produce the steel to build our airplanes? Why the heck were we having China to produce components to the F-35 to the point where the pilots were passing out while they were flying? And these special goggles and everything else that we were allowing them to produce, we gave them our military and other technology to them. So while we were worrying about, oh, uh, what what's going on over in Afghanistan and have being sidelined with a war that should have ended back in 2005, as you write in your book. There was no reason for us. We won it in 2005. You go in, you fight, you win, you get out. But no, that's not what we do. So now what one hand is doing, you're not going to see what the other hand does. Don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain is what we have been told. So now China is a military might. And you're right. If that goes into Taiwan, and if they plan to do that, and I'm telling you, I, I fully expect it to happen. It is going to be the bloodiest war we have ever seen, because the Taiwan Marines are not going to give up very easily. They're not the Afghans. And what's going to happen is, how many of our nations are going to come to the side of Taiwan? I think there's only two of us standing with them right now. And, oh, by the way, Nancy Pelosi canceled her trip next month to go to Taiwan because she thought it would be too distracting. Yeah. Scott, I, That's, uh, Fred, we, we've got ourselves a mess here, Fred, a big mess. Hot mess. You're absolutely right. I couldn't say it better myself, Anne. And when you see this deal that's uh, brewing right in front of us, you, you smell the odor. You know what's you know what it really is. We don't need to investigate any further to find out what's sitting in front of us. That ain't chocolate chip. You don't need to bite into it to figure out, pardon my technical terms, that that's a bunch of crap. But uh, when that happens, as we've seen, as you accurately described, how we were horsing around shamelessly for 20 years, if the generals had their way, it would have been much It would have been forever. But uh, because it's lucrative. All these generals like I described, they all work for these defense firms. It's the No General Left Behind program. So mark my words, when we were horsing around for 20 years and the Chinese were going out and brokering this One Belt, One Road initiative, all roads lead to Beijing. Now they have all these maritime and overland sea routes. 
um, with Al Capone couldn't even broker these types of good deals where all the terms and conditions of these countries default and all the seaports and airports and rails and everything they purchased and which benefit China. They're using Chinese labor. So if they default, it just ties up their, they get the terms and conditions are their natural resources. They become puppet states, client states for the Chinese. And so they have all these countries, over 60 countries, and on the PRC's payroll, well, we've been horsing around, you know, with this couch change in Afghanistan that gets these generals and only these generals rich. China was in there, you know, still is in there, getting rich on all their uranium and their uh, natural resources. Rare earths. And, and the rare earths. I mean, so when Benjamin, we go, I don't know if you know Benjamin Smith, but he sent me a map one day. Yes. As soon as Afghanistan fell, and he said the new caliphate, and it, it, it's, it's true, because China shares a small border. Yes, I'll bet a small border with Afghanistan. But no sooner did we do the fall of Saigon in Afghanistan, Chinese were already in country negotiating the, the mining contracts for the uranium and rare earth minerals. Oh, by the way, the rare earth minerals we need for the electric batteries that Joe Biden insists that we will be buying Within the next few years, every household will have a, a, an electric vehicle, all courtesy of China. I, and then you look yes. at the way you go from Afghanistan, Pakistan, into Iraq, Iran. You have the entire Muslim caliphate in the hands of China, in the control of China. And just how stupid are we? Yes. This year, the beginning of the year, everybody's worried about these Russian oligarchs and their money. And we have our own oligarchs in the United States, and they're very short-sighted because they are taking the money from whoever will pay it. And when we go to war with China, and mark my words, even though that treaty has expired to defend Taiwan, all those names on the tops of the buildings as you fly into Reagan or Dulles and you see the, the real power brokers around the Pentagon and the intelligence community, they want a war. And when that happens, what's going to happen to our national economy in the United States because of this One Belt, One Road initiative? And if you think you have some problems now with inflation because, you know, Russia has locked up some oil and has driven and we've shut our own oil off for a nonsensical reason, um, and then the price of food's gone up because, you know, Russia has a lot of these phosphates that we use for fertilizers, but China is exponentially a far greater economic threat to the United States, not just what they produce in their own country, because we wanted to export all our manufacturing so we don't pollute our own country. Now that's all in Western China. But but what they own through the One Belt, One Road initiative for logistics that's required for the next 100 years for China, we're screwed, Ann, royally. Yeah, yeah. And we, we yeah. really can't afford a war, but these generals who nobody's held accountable are driving us to that point. Listen, start reading, now that you've heard it, start reading about all those saber-rattling by all these generals. They want a war. And guess who's going to fight it? Not their kids, but the ones across the street, your neighbors. Those sons and daughters of America will be sacrificed. Uh, as, as you read further in the book, and I don't want to spoil it for you or your listeners, Ann, but um, I was crazy enough to go on a subsequent deployment back to Afghanistan after our work arms trial. <laughs> and the commanding officer, I was his operations officer, told me 
Fred, I'm willing to sacrifice the lives of these Marines. If you don't believe me, you'll see it uh, corroborated with my polygraph taken by the President of the American Polygraph Association and the Department of Navy that did an investigation. They found that that commanding officer that said that to me, this is a guy who dropped a 500-pound bomb 34 meters away from his own guys, sent two 675-pound surface-fired rockets right on his own guys, said to me twice, I'm willing to sacrifice lives of these Marines, Fred, and I need to make sure you'll do the same in the future. He's still in circulation. He just got promoted. He had a uh, command. Yeah, command. These are, this is who you read Chapter 28, and you see all these guys were promoted. They had command assignments. They were awarded for all this. And what was allowed to happen in that courtroom where they would say, we're going to go to classified session, they'd move the media out. Every time they knew a witness would provide exculpatory evidence exonerating us or say evidence or their testimony was going to have them fall on their sword. And you read, this book has all that declassified and described in that book. And you read what these people said under sworn testimony. You get in that courtroom, as you notice from reading this, and it's not my words, it's their own words that they said on the witness stand under oath. And you're just like, how did they get away with this? They didn't just, you know, some of these people perjured themselves, they betrayed their own men on note when they knew what the truth was, and then they covered it up, and they got away with this. This is the biggest, darkest secret in American history, and people need to know about it. So please go on Amazon, buy a few bad men, either an Audible, if you like to listen to it, or read it on uh, electronically on Kindle or hardback. Uh, but you do really need to be aware of what the truth happened. I've been not boasting just factually on hundreds and hundreds of interviews uh, before and since this book came out last month. And the military has not disputed a word. I'm retired, so I'm still in the government's payroll where there's no statute of limitations for awesome misconduct the Marine Corps won't even respond. They haven't said a word, let alone try to fix any of this. So uh, if we expect our military to be capable. It has to be led by competent and moral commanders. We can't allow this moral hazard to continue. It needs to get fixed. If you spend a ton of money on your home or your car and the repair guys make it even worse, you would fire them. Why aren't right, we doing this right. with what we spend the most of our tax dollars on in? No, it's, it's true. But instead, we have the social engineering, because I don't know if you saw the post that was put up by the oh. Marine Corps up on Twitter uh, announcing Pride Month. Excuse me. You're a Marine. I don't care what side of the blanket you're sleeping on. You go out there, you're trained to kill and break things. But that's not the new military. We now have to have the social engineering. And, oh, by the way, it doesn't matter that you're going to be on a lifetime of hormones and everything, and you may not be able to be uh, fit for duty in the field because you're going through all these things, and heaven forbid we trigger you. That's not the purpose of the, Marine, of the, the military, much less the Marine Corps. That's not the purpose. It's to go out there and break no. and kill things and to win a war and protect our nation. But that's not what we have. We have it where you said it's the feel good, 
You're now building schools. You're shaking hands. You're trying to do no harm, the Hippocratic Oath that you write about that uh, Mattis took over. Uh, and this is what our military is devolving into, and we are not going to be combat ready. No. You, you heard during the inauguration of President Joe Biden, it was also echoed multiple times by his Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and his Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Miley, who all said that the biggest problem in our military is white male supremacy. I served for 27 years. I went on serving four more years as a government civilian for the Department of Defense. I've never seen racism. Now, I'm not saying that there's not some crazy person out there, but as far as our number one problem, I did hunt and target networks of terrorist leaders that we look at how they're organized, what their hierarchy is, how they communicate, what kind of weapons they have, where they're located. If if our senior leaders, the commander-in-chief himself, Secretary of Defense, the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, is saying this is the largest problem is ourselves, then who's in charge? What weapons are they using? How do they communicate? Where are they? But there's no proof of that because that would require facts. But they're further trying to divide our military, dismantle it and destroy it and purge it of you know, the, the leaders that we had, that anybody that's left standing, they want them to either buckle and genuflect to their radical ideas or you get forced out the door. That's what's going on right now, and we got to stop Ma- this. Major. Yes, sir. I, I kind of like got two questions, because before I was, was going to ask you um, what administration this all happened under um, your Afghanistan um, Yes, that was a good question. So it's happened during all three. It started under Bush 43. It continued and uh, was never fixed during the Obama or now in the or Trump and Biden. I mean, we, I, as Ann accurately described, here our current administration, so four. Uh, President Biden, we have, uh, you're the commander-in-chief, have a lawsuit out because uh, when somebody is forced to be held underwater and you destroy, you professionally destroy somebody, do you see that as ethical? Is that how you want to inspire other officers or promote other officers for doing something is unethical, is professionally destroying? I mean, the Marine Corps promotes people on seven key pillars. When you look at that, I was above them. The main thing is, is we have to highlight, that's the purpose of this, uh, I'm an employee at Tesla. I don't have uh, my end game isn't a, a promotion in the Marine Corps, but it's to highlight the massive injustice and how our military justice system right now, with these three guys, and in my case, they don't want justice. They they want to, just like in the case with these three special operators from Marine Special Operations Command. They, they tried to put a gag order on them, just like they did with us, where we couldn't say anything to the press. They attempted to do that with their current case, and that was thrown out. But in our case, they put a, they called it a nice term, they call it a protective order. But then it was also punitive to myself, another co-witness, the, the Marine captain, as well as it was, they said our attorneys would be debarred if they said, if they broke the protective order. I mean, when you don't want people to say anything, you gag them, that is the most un-American, that violates the First Amendment, 
And is, is America good with this? I don't believe so. So we need to stop this. But uh, to answer your question, from Bush 43 to Obama to Trump and now, you know, these issues need to get escalated. I mean, the president is still the commander-in-chief, but no one has done anything to fix it. Now, isn't it true that um, one of the reasons why the Marine Corps resisted um, uh, uh, Marine Special Operation Command under the leadership and guidance and control of JSOC, which is the Joint Special Operations Command, is because of the fact that Marines like Marines to be supportive of other Marines. And once you created MARSOC, Marine Raiders, then they're not necessarily serving the needs of the Marine Corps, but of JSOC. Is that true? You're absolutely right. Yes. So JSOC is the the higher level, the Tier 1, SEAL Team 6, Delta Force. I know people don't like to use those terms, but uh, anyway, uh, those are other units that the Marine Corps is not a part of the, the Joint Special Operations Command. They're part of the Special Operations Command. But you're right, and the fact is true, that the Marine Corps has a mentality that, like, hey, if I'm going to pay for that beer, I'm going to chug it myself. You know, Marines were born in a bar, so uh, I know most Marines can understand that, and that's exactly why in 1987 when they founded the Special Operations Command, Army Rangers, Green Berets, Air Force Special Operators, and Navy SEALs all were organized immediately under the Special Operations Command. The Marine Corps said, no, they're not going to do it. And uh, they were forced in Bush 43's second term, I mean, originally when Rumsfeld said in 2001 after the attack, he wanted to increase capacity with all the services, all complied, all branches of service except for the Marines. Marines stiff-armed them. And then once Bush, they thought Bush would, 43 would be a one-term president like his father, he got reelected. Rumsfeld was still on as his sec, sec def, and he said, you will create a special operations component in the special operations command. That's when I was assigned the first commanding officer of a Marine Special Operations Task Force. We went in there. They Actually, when you bring this up, so we were organized and deployed on Navy ships. The Marine Corps did not even want to let us off those boats. And then the Army pulled us off, employed us in Afghanistan, and pointed the finger and became the critic and led to, they were the ones that initiated getting us kicked out. But that arranged marriage from Dr. Rumsfeld of the Marine Corps and the Special Operations Command, not only was it wanted, we were the first love child or Special Operations Task Force that I commanded, uh, but they wanted us to die on the operating table. They either wanted to control it and allow Bush 43 to leave and disband the Marines, special operators, like they did in World War II with the World War II Raiders. They lived a short life of two years, and then the comment on the Marine Corps wrote while President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who came up with the concept and that led to them being established in February of 42, two years later, the commandant, while FDR was still the commander-in-chief during war, these guys had been fighting in the South Pacific, wrote a sentence that it's not in the best interest of the Marine Corps to have an elite with an elite, disbanded the Marine Raiders. So the Marines have a trend, whether it's in the 80s, whether it's in the 40s, or in 2007, to strongly oppose having an elite with an elite. 
Uh, so, yeah, there were some inside villains uh, in this. It's really interesting in this book. I'm not going to tell you the whole, I know Anne's uh, most of the way <laughs> through it, but it, it takes you many different directions. You hear from the chronology of what the press was originally saying and you know what you originally were able to hear from the press that was allowed in the courtroom. It's very condemning, and you're going to be leaning one direction, and at the end of it, you'll you'll not believe anything you read before uh, because you're presented with all of the facts, and that's why it's so important in America that we have a justice system that is ethical and that doesn't be allowed to uh, show just one side of the story, that you have your day in court and can explain your side uh, to the public. Uh, that did not happen to the commandos that I was in charge of, and it didn't. It got explained to the jury but not the public until you read A Few Bad Men. Yeah, no, because the book is so fascinating. You have in several areas sort of like a precursor or a premonition almost because you would see a unit you're coming in to replace what happened to them and you're like, oh no, this is not going to happen to me and you would reverse policy. Yes. They wanted you to stand by, stay behind the wire uh, to play patty cake with the locals to make a good picture press. press. Uh, you, they wanted you to look nice and good and oh, look what good things we're doing over here. Um, but you being a Marine, you being a warrior, and your men being warriors with you, you said, we're not having any of this. We're going to go in, do our job so we can go home. And you were more concerned about the safety of your men much, and not worried about your own. Uh, that's what a good leader does, and that's what we're not seeing in our military. So your book is a must-read. To my listeners, I'm telling them, it's a must-read. There's a link on the show page here, uh, Fred. So you know I get a lot of hits in the archives that they can go there while they listen to the broadcast, click on it, and get the book. Get it either Audible, Kindle, or just get the hard copy. But it's read it and share it. Yes. You're, you're such a great uh, advertiser, but it's, it's an important story. There's not a lot of other – this isn't some 12-step program – that may or may not have results. Um, we were exonerated in 2019, 12 years after this, by the people. I've, I've went out, got petitions, I've had an act of Congress by bipartisan, bicameral support. Uh, you know, I worked with the media, took a campaign for a dozen years, but we won, Ann, and this can, yes. this can have results. It can actually save the lives of these three Marine special operators who are being, they're under fire right now. Two Marine gunneries, gunnery sergeants and a, a Navy chief hospital corpsman. Yes. Uh, yes. When you, well, when you Fred, see that their case isn't adjudicated, there's something wrong. And it's right. bad news. Right. Absolutely. Well, Fred, we're going to have to have you back on. We'll push the book some more. As soon as I finish reading it, um, I have to have my, uh, my gentleman friend give me a little extra time to finish reading the book. But, Fred, it's always a pleasure having you on, and uh, I'll be talking with you soon. Yes. Thank you, and God bless, and have a great day. God bless. All right. All right, folks, check it out. Major Fred Galvin, along with Sal Amena, who wrote the book, A Few Bad Men, The True Story of U.S. Marines Ambushed in Afghanistan and Betrayed in America. Check it out on Amazon. Click on it. Get the book. I guarantee you will not be disappointed, but it will open your eyes. That said, we've got our... Third victim in the studio here, Steve Beeman. Uh, he is with 
Ever, I'm going to say this wrong, Elevator Club, and he's going to be talking to us about some very important issues like the economy, stupid. Good afternoon, Steve. How are you today? I'm very well, and I hope you cannot hear too much background noise. I'm actually on a bus at LAX going to my rental car. The timing is great. <laughs> I'm so pleased to be on with you. I'm glad we were able to work it out because our flights were a little delayed, and it's just nice to be on the program. Well, if I could have Waleed Perez call in from the airport as they're calling his flight to board, I could deal with you on the, the transport bus to your car rental. <laughs> Well, there you go. Thank you so much for understanding, but it's a pleasure. And again, I love being on the program. I heard your last segment. And I thought that was terrific. Yeah. Well, now you have to buy the book. <laughs> uh, count on it. Absolutely. And we'll put it out for well, our members it, to get. Well, we have an administration who goes on Jimmy Kimmel Live, President Biden, uh, or as I call him, Creepy Uncle Joe, um, touting that the economy is the best it's ever been, and yet we're at the highest inflation level in 40 years. How could he possibly say that this is the best economy ever? Well, clearly that's a fantasy. It's not. I mean, I, now I will say it's not as bad as the late 70s, early 80s when we had double-digit inflation, double-digit interest rates, and double-digit unemployment. But the fear I think many people in the financial markets have is that we're headed toward that as we get toward the end of the fourth quarter into next year, because what's keeping the economy afloat right now is individual consumers that are using their savings to keep the spending going, and that savings is a finite amount. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, And I've been going through mine, and I just put the brakes on it, and I said, nope, it's not going below X amount of money, because if anything really does hit the fan... I, I, I'm right. saying, a little, that's a little it. bit like I, watching Lake Mead, right? You just put a break on it and yeah. say, nope, can't go below that. Can't go below that level. Uh, but with your company, you help the small businesses, and they have been hit first with the pandemic and then with this administration's policy. Uh, there's a lot of small businesses that will never open back up again, and the small businesses were the highest employers throughout the nation. So what There's do we absolute do? truth to that. Well, here, and you're right. The Alavera Club is all about small business. We work with small businesses from Maine to California, and we try to help them survive in what is becoming an increasingly difficult age. When you look at regulation, you look at tax policy, and you look at the major trend of digital transformation, a lot of the small companies are left behind. Now, again, this has been going on for some time. I think it was about 2016 I wrote the book, The American Dream Under Fire, And it was all about a cultural shift taking place in our country that did no longer rewarded entrepreneurialism, but instead was looking to the big. And the big, unfortunately, can't drive innovation. They can't drive growth. They don't drive new ideas and better ways to live. Well, they were looking for government to make jobs. But government, is that's not the business of government. The government is to provide us with security so we can uh, be entrepreneurial. We can enjoy our freedoms. But instead, we're now being forced to worship at the altar of government and no longer at the altar of our God. Well, and that clearly doesn't work. We have thousands of years of recorded history where we can look at that specific issue, and it's never worked in the past. It won't work here. In fact, in the late 80s, I hosted communist people from the Soviet Union throughout the United States on a tour. And at the end of a month-long tour here, they said to a person, we get it now, the problem is government. And they they went back, and that was the Glasnost perestroika time. 
because people started to recognize that growth and innovation and you know, almost happiness and prosperity come out of the small business sector much, much more than big business and big government. Yeah, now I had owned a business. I actually had opened it in 1978, you know, at the height of everything happening under uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, and it was not easy to have a small business back then. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm seeing right now where friends of mine are saying, they're throwing their hands up and saying, that's it, we give up. And what do you say to someone who does that? I say to them, it's been a lot worse in the past, but like every storm, these things do pass. And it's never a bad time to start an entrepreneurial business, whether it's a gig with your own personal talent or a business with a product or service that you have in mind. Either of those can work in almost any environment. You maybe have to work a little harder. You have to be a little more creative, but you can get there and you can, you can thrive and you can build a prosperous business. Now, what do you say to the person that doesn't have a business, someone like me, uh, maybe a retiree or someone uh, that is just scraping by, what do you say to them to how to brace for it? And we know the recession is coming. It's just about a matter of when. What do you say to them to help them brace for it? Well, I think there is kind of a mixed thing here. If you look forward, as many of us do and say we're headed toward a recession because of rising interest rates, because of the stagnation of the economy, it does kind of help the fixed income people because inflation will come down. And that's a, that's a twisted way to look at it. But if I'm living on Social Security and Medicare and the government you know, programs in my retirement and my 401K, what I tell people first is don't panic. Do not sell your 401K because it looks bad. These things will pass. Warren Buffett doesn't sell stocks because the market's down. He sells stocks because he doesn't believe in the business anymore. And I still believe in the business of America. So... If you own, you know, ETFs and things of that nature, I think you've got an opportunity to sustain yourself. But truly, it is a time for a level head. You look at things and say, okay, I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon of the, you know, press that's going to be beating things down. I'm going to live by my own devices. If I have to go from steak to chicken for a while, I will do that. But I can survive that, and I can live just as well on chicken as I can steak. Well, you know, it's funny because um, I got criticized because I'm someone who stockpiles. <laughs> I, I guess it's right. leftover because my uh, grandparents, my parents lived through the Depression. And it was just something that was a mindset. You just grew up with it. So I, I, right. We're I have to laugh. We're the last generation, I think. I think so. So I opened my freezer today to get a loaf of bread out. And I'm looking around, I'm looking at all the chopped meat and chicken and everything I have in there. I'm going, damn, I bought the chopped meat at 99 cents a pound. And it's like five ninety nine in the store now. <laughs> it wasn't that good timing. I can tell you stories about how that's been successful for businesses in the past. But, you know, it's difficult to time these things. Right now, I do think we're looking for a bigger slowdown in the economy. And that's a function of policies coming out of Washington. There's no question. These are not business-friendly policies. They're looking at tax increases and increased regulation. And both of those things are especially bad for small business. So the solution here is we get better policies in Washington, and that means I hope people will vote for policies, not personalities. I really do. And if they look at the policies of the people they're voting for, maybe they'll get a better handle on who's actually for a positive economic environment and who's out to, I won't say with intent, but whose policies will detrimentally affect the economy. You know, it's funny because um, for some reason before Biden got elected, I said it was time for me to fix up my house. You know, I'm a recent widow. 
So all the work that my husband had done was just left undone. I got myself a good contractor, someone I trusted, and I sunk the money in there. And I said, all right, fine. Interest rates are low right now. I'm going to do a refi, and I'm going to pay off a bunch of high-interest credit cards, saving myself about 500 bucks a month. There you go. Is this something that you would suggest? Because my end game plan is, is in maybe in a year or so, when interest rates are extremely high, and the value of my house is still up there, do a reverse mortgage and then live off of it for the rest of my life. Is I that what you would advise like people those, to do? I, I would certainly suggest they look into it very closely. The idea of getting out of the credit card debt at the 25% rates with a home mortgage is a good idea. Let's remember that historically rates are still pretty low. You know, they've, they've bumped up a little bit. They've come back down a little bit, but they're still relatively low. So if you can lock in a good rate on your house, get a little cash out to pay off the bad debt that you have, stabilize a little bit, and then, frankly, for you to bring up the idea of a reverse mortgage, I think is something many more people should look at. These are not scams. They're legitimate. And for people who are getting a little older, it's a great way to get some cash out, live a good life in the home you've loved, and let them worry about it afterwards. Yeah, now if I can only get the hot tub working in the back that I put in. <laughs> there you <I'd> go. <laughs> That's right. My heart goes out to you for your loss. That's never a fun time. But I think, you know, we're, we're in a transition here, not just economically, but structurally. One of the things the Elevator Club does is try to work with our business owners to walk them into this digital economy. That's beginning to change how everything works, whether it's through robotics and artificial intelligence or machine learning, and again, the metaverse concept. We're really trying to help them understand digital marketing, digital advertising, and that helps increase their revenues. All the while, we try to help them cut their costs. And that's a good recipe now, for enhanced success. Now, explain metaverse. Okay, if you think about right now, there's a thing called Web 3.0, and I'll put it in very simple terms. When you're looking at a computer right now, you're looking at the technology. The whole next growth in this stuff, Web 3.0, if you will, is working in the technology. And that means you're creating a virtual world in which you can actually use an avatar as a representation of yourself and go in and conduct meetings, conduct education, networking events, all types of things, but it's done virtually. So it's not real, but it's the next best thing. Well, isn't, isn't so that's that the same thing that Zoom does? <laughs> well, the isn't difference the is Zoom is, Zoom is limited. For example, in a metaverse, if you want to have 250 people in a classroom, you can do that. If you wanted to have 500 people in a room, you could do that. If you want to hold very private meetings and get documents signed while you're sitting in there, you can do that. So it's just a little bit different. It's kind of it's a next generation of Zoom, if you will. Hmm. I'm wondering what that would do with something like a podcast like this. That would be very interesting. It would, because what we would do is like to put these podcasts up within our metaverse so that as people come in and they're sitting around talking, they can hear this as a background. And if they hear something interesting, they can say, oh, I want to click on that. I want to learn more. So if Hmm. you think about like our, we are, the Elevator Club is literally an interlinked series of local clubs. So we have the Dallas Club, the Florida Club, the Georgia Club, the Illinois Club. And so these are all local, but they're all interlinked. So you can go from Illinois to Texas to Georgia to Florida. And in these clubs, it really feels like a private club. You go in and you have a concierge there to greet you. 
and help walk you through the services that we have. You can sit behind a desk or you can sit at a couch in front of a fire and you can have discussions with people about important topics that affect business. We do keep it to business. We try real hard not to let it go personal. That's very, very interesting. Now, are small businesses learning about your services and how many are now able to expand their businesses and services? Well, we have some really good examples. On our website, elevareclub.com, there's a testimonial from one of our members who ran a little bakery, and it was a very struggling bakery. But then one day in January, after a lot of work, she gets an order from American Airlines, and she looks at it and says, this is wonderful. How am I going to do this? Well, we were able to go in with our capital, with our accounting services, with our HR services, and our consulting teams, and we were able to give her the backup support she needed so she could build out that capacity. She now has a thriving business, and that's the kind of poster child for what we're trying to do. Now, is this expensive? Oh, not at all. An annual membership, we are, as I said, we're a private club. The annual dues are $950, so it's not a huge amount of money, and that gets you discounts. I think the last total we have is the discounts you get equal about $11,000. So it's a, it's a very fair value proposition, not to mention some of the things we can do, like we have everything from finance to health insurance to legal advice, capital, HR help, payment processing for a lot of gun shops that can't get it anywhere else. So we do an awful mm-hmm. lot, and so our members get a, what we think of as a very high value proposition. Wow. Now, um, are you finding like the – Below the 30 and below crowd, are they starting to go towards your services? Because they were the ones that helped propel Biden to the presidency and bring in this progressive agenda. Are they turning around and saying, well, maybe we bought the wrong horse? Uh, I think it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, Where I think the millennial is coming from and the Gen Z, there's a split. It's almost a 50-50 split. Half of them have gone into the woke agenda. The other half are very entrepreneurial and very libertarian. So we're seeing a resurgence of the libertarian type of thoughts that just say, look, I don't trust anybody big. Get out of my life. I'll do it my way. So we're seeing an entrepreneurial generation come up. We're very excited about. But I do think it's so easy for you and me, and I'm 60, so I come out of that generation. It's so easy to condemn the millennial. But the fact is I meet these people every day, and they're not all the woke idiots you see on YouTube. For the most part, they're decent, good, hardworking people. Well, you know, I, I was reading uh, several statistics uh, a couple of years ago that the kids coming up today are looking at their older siblings and seeing how woke they are, and they're going against the grain, saying, wait a minute, this woke thing isn't working too well for my older brother and sister, and maybe there is hope for this nation. Well, I think like any radical idea, it has a trend and a pendulum. If it swings too far to one side, it'll come back to the other. The woke ideas in many cases, normal people can say we want no racial discrimination. You and I would both agree with that. That's not the issue here. It's how far you take it. I don't have any problem with homosexuals, not at all. But when you start to tell me that kids can go into schools dressed like dogs and cats and have litter boxes, I say this has gone too far. Yeah, (laughs) that I would definitely say. That I definitely would say. I mean, there has to be some sanity, uh, and that's what we're not seeing at this moment. And 
I really believe 90% of us are in that mode of, look, let's find reasonable approaches to reasonable problems. And I think that's part of why the Elevator Club really ends to, as much as we can, we stay out of politics and look at policy. Because we're all, most of us want the same types of things. We want economic prosperity. We want families to be intact as best we can. We want to have some sense of values in a system that are agreed upon. And we want to have a clean environment. We want all these things. If we work together and don't hate each other for having different opinions, we can genuinely get there. Well, Steve, it is a pleasure having you. You travel safe, and I'm sorry we didn't have the full half hour with you, but people can find you at elevareclub.com, correct? Yes, indeed, and I appreciate your patience with me. I'm sorry that I was delayed. That's no problem. Like I said, if I can have Wally Perez call me as his plane is being called, (laughs) you on a bus is no problem. (laughs) Well, that's kind of you. Thank you very much. I hope you have a wonderful day, and I hope we can do it again. God bless. Travel safe. Steve Beeman, check him out, elevair.com. We've got our fourth victim, uh, our biweekly, the other love of my life, Mark Tapscott. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you today? Hello, Ann. How are you? I hope your wife isn't listening when I said that. (laughs) (laughs) She listens to every word. Oh. How are you, Well, she puts up. All right. Well, Mark, if she puts up with you, she has to be a very wonderful woman. <laughs> How's that? She is. She's a saint. Hey, oh, there is so much to talk about with you, and oh my goodness, I I don't even know where to start when I start putting the notes aside for you the night before, because by the time the morning hits, everything gets tossed up in the air, and it's like, all right, where do we start now? <laughs> well, as a matter of we, fact... Um, I had a story that just went up about 10 minutes ago. Um, Anthony Fauci, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, said he's going to retire in January of 2025, and a group opened the books uh, that you're probably familiar with, calculated his likely, yeah, Adam, uh, his likely federal pension when he retires, and it will be four hundred and fourteen thousand and six hundred and sixty seven dollars a year for a pension holy and that's that's holy. more than the president of the united states has paid and the question is what is his current salary uh it's about four hundred uh i don't remember exactly i think it's in the neighborhood of I don't remember exactly. It's a bunch. He's the highest paid single federal employee, and there are 4.3 so million of them. So in other words, he's getting almost 100% retirement. Yes, absolutely. Not, not, not quite 100%. I think his current salary is 460000 uh, All right, all right, all right. He's getting, he's getting 90%. Oh, the poor guy. I'm wondering if he's going to starve I said he's getting a lot more than any of us are ever likely to get. Yeah, because I, I did pull up an article that was also there in, in the uh, Epoch Times that you're the D.C. Uh, correspondent on uh, about Fauci saying that he's going to be retiring soon. But I'm glad that you <laughs> followed through on what his pension's going to be. Uh, but is that including all the other benefits like his medical and so on and so forth? No, no, it does not. And that's a great point, Ann, because 
federal employees and federal retirees um, have extremely generous benefits uh, in addition to the salaries that they receive. And when I say that, I'm not suggesting that federal employees are all a bunch of lazy bums, though having worked in the government and covered the government for lo these many decades, I can tell you there are lazy bums in the federal workforce, just like there is anywhere else. Uh, and they get extremely generous health benefits. They get a great deal more time off than is typical uh, in the private sector, and they get great dental benefits. Um, working in the federal government, from the, the strictly from the standpoint of the individual, uh, it's a great place to work. Yeah. yeah, it seems like it. And I had a chance to do that back in the 80s. Uh, to work for the federal government, and I said, well, I'm not a cog in the machine, so if I buck the system, uh, um, if I try to find an innovative way to improve a process, your guys are not going to be too happy with me. So I'll be right. the pariah. Now, I, I, think, uh, I think I will ditch the uh, government job and go stay on my own, <laughs> which made yeah. me a lot um, of friends. <laughs> there, there are many, many people. Uh, who are more than willing to accept uh, a fat salary and great benefits and keep their mouth shut, just mm-hmm. do what they're told. Now, now, Fauci has himself a nice little side business in the NIH. Besides getting his hefty pension, how does his wife fit into this one? Because you wrote a recent article uh, about uh, her and her agency job, her health agency job. Well, it would it would it would help if officials at the NIH, the National Institutes for Health, uh, would abide by the law, the Federal Freedom of Information Act, uh, and disclose the details about Christine Grady, uh, Fauci's wife, um, the details of her compensation, but they refuse to do so. We do know that her annual salary is, I believe, 238000 a year, um, which is more than <laughs> the vast majority of federal employees, including uh, senior executive types. Um, but we don't know the specific job description that she has as uh, director of NIH's um, medical health center. She's a bioethicist, which uh, is certainly not a, an easy job, but it's an undescribed job as far as the public knows. And the uh, Open the Books folks, Adam Andrzejewski, um, they submitted an FOI seeking the uh, details of Christine Grady's employment, and NIH basically ignored them, just blew them off. So uh, Adam and his uh, folks filed a federal FOI lawsuit, and they've asked a federal court, uh, and I will be amazed if the court does not do this, to order NIH to uh, cough up the documents. And I I suspect we're going to find out some interesting details when that happens. Yeah, because we haven't haven't said anything yet. We haven't said anything yet about the $350 million dollars in estimated secret royalty payments that people at NIH have You read my for, mind. Uh, <laughs> you read 20, my mind. Uh, almost 12 years. 
Oh, man. You know, we have all these, these scientists that are in the NIH. They're supposed to be screening stuff so that the American public isn't going to be getting bad medicine and bad devices and whatever. And yet they're getting royalties and subsidies from these very companies they're supposed to be investigating and screening. Where is the ethics in that? And we still haven't well, found gotten to the bottom of this. Well, and, and as long as the NIH refuses to uh, make public the names of the companies that are paying these secret royalties to individual employees, uh, officials like Anthony Fauci uh, and scientists and researchers at NIH, uh, we, we have no way of knowing whether uh, these payments are legitimate or not. And, you know, I mean, all of us uh, would like to believe that everybody at NIH does great work. They certainly do important work. And if that is the case and it's legitimate, then there is absolutely no reason to keep it secret. The public has a right Mm -hmm. to know how the government is spending the public's tax dollars. And, you know, based on my many years of experience in the government and covering the government, uh, one of the last things that the typical bureaucrat wants to do is to be held accountable. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. It is. It is. And our this government has been the least transparent of any, uh, which brings me around to Hunter Biden. Now, it looks like the S is going to hit the fan, possibly, because the DOJ is finally doing an actual investigation. Am I reading these articles and hearing the news reports wrong? Are we finally going to get something on Hunter? I've heard uh, opinions from folks that I respect uh, on both sides of the of the answer to that question. Um, there are those who say, no, what they're going to do is simply uh, recommend a you know, a minimally uh, significant charge, and then he will get a um, extremely generous generous uh, verdict, and then President Biden will pardon him, and he will then get off, you know, scot-free. On the other hand, there are folks who contend, and, and again, this is people on both sides that I I respect who say, no, the, the Delaware attorney, um, federal district attorney, who has been doing this investigation, uh, has, has been digging for a long time and clearly has come up with a substantial amount of evidence of serious wrongdoing, and that's going to come mm. out. I, you know, I hope, I hope the latter is the case, but I will not be surprised if the former proves to be the case, because we've... We've seen, um, you know, we have basically a double standard of justice in this country these days in some respects. Well, no matter which way they go, Daddy can always, you know, pardon him, no matter which way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, the only thing that would prevent Biden from issuing a pardon would be public embarrassment, and frankly, I don't think that's a consideration. 
<laughs> I, I, no, no, I don't. I don't. Especially, what is it, um, where he fell off the, uh, the the bicycle? It's now uh, Brandon's Way or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I kind of felt sorry for that. That that was that was an unfortunate situation. But at the same time, it's also indicative that there are concerns, legitimate concerns, about his physical health. Um, he, you know, it's it's not his fault that he's, uh, you know, as old as he is. He didn't decide. A doddering old fool. Well. <laughs> um. I, you know, I, it's not his fault, um, but the people of the uh, the American electorate um, made a decision to choose him, or it so appears, to be the president, and they assumed that he would be capable of fulfilling the duties of the job. And based on what we've seen so far, there's great doubt about that. Yeah, there is. Uh, I just want to do a little side thing because there was something I caught uh, on uh, Newsmax just before coming on the air. And they were going over um, testimony in reference to Trump uh, and the rally on January 6th. And they kept on looking for that smoking gun where Trump was actively fanning the flames. And it seems that like between the time he was on stage at 1-0-something in the afternoon to past 6 in the evening, he never made any of those phone calls, you know, urging, you know, the invasion of the Capitol. Do you think the January 6th thing is finally going to collapse? Well, let me just say this about that. Um, there is a smoking gun regarding what happened on January 6th. It's not the one that the January 6th committee is trying to persuade us all has to do with Donald Trump. It's the one that has to do with the multiple characters who were involved in inciting violence before the bulk of the crowd who were still back at the uh, Trump speech, before they left the Trump speech and got to the Capitol. There was a smaller crowd with a bunch of these folks who have never been identified but clearly were operating um, in the manner of uh, people who know how to purposely incite riots. And if you want more details about that, the Epoch Times today unveiled a new documentary called What Really Happened on January 6th, and I urge all of your readers to watch it. It's an hour and 42 minutes, and I guarantee you it will, it will, you will not forget it. And I have to, I have to warn you, you have to be a subscriber. So, um, there is that. But I promise you, if you watch that documentary, you will be very upset. Mark. Wow. My yes. Under- wow. My understanding is that the case against Trump by this um, January 6th committee is not going to be referred um, to the Justice Department for criminal um, charges, uh, and that has um, Liz Cheney upset. Is this your understanding of it? Because they I, don't have you know, I, I, Well, I've heard that, and I'm not surprised that she would be upset about it <laughs> uh, since her political career is going down the tubes. Um, you know, I frankly, I would be surprised. My guess is 
Um, Pelosi is more likely to do something like um, why why refer it for to the Department of Justice when we can just impeach him again and impeach him in absentia or something like that. I don't know if that's even possible, but but my guess is there's a great reluctance to send it over there um, to the Department of Justice with charges because. <laughs> The basic fact is Trump and nobody with the January 6th committee has even uh, acknowledged this yet, much less presented evidence to dispute it. But on January 5th, Trump told the Department of Defense, you have my authorization if Pelosi requests it, if uh, Muriel Bowser, the D.C. uh, mayor, requested, you have my authorization for thousands of National Guard troops. Now, you know, if you're expecting to try to incite a riot at the Capitol, the last thing you're going to do is put 10,000 National Guard troops there in addition to the Capitol Police and the District of Columbia Police. So there's just, it's just not reasonable, at least in my view, to think that the Department of Justice is going to be able to find a federal court that will, or a federal jury even in the District of Columbia, that would convict Trump. No, no. I mean, watching it unfold, because I was, I was getting text messages when he was doing the speech about the breach in the Capitol, and that was before he even uttered the words, let's march to the Capitol and peacefully protest. Before yeah. he even uttered those words, the Capitol was being breached. So... You do the timeline, and it just does not match. If you look at the, ta- yeah. the, the tactics of the Capitol Police, it made no sense. I mean, I've, I've gone, <laughs> I've stood ground on many riots in New York City, and that's not how you handle something like that. And from no. the word go, it was a, excuse my language, but a clusterfuck. And I'm saying, well, as you say, it, there's a possibility instigators. I'm not even saying, but I know there are instigators there. Well, you know, something else that, that I, in my view, uh, renders it just unlikely in the extreme that the uh, January 6th committee would refer charges uh, on Trump to the Department of <clears throat> Justice is the fact that there is hours and hours of video showing Capitol Police trying to prevent people from penetrating inside the Capitol and Capitol Police holding the doors open for people to go into the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think the problem that that illustrates is Capitol Police, and I, I, you know, I've been around here for a long time. I know a bunch of these guys. They are not trained riot police. They are there to provide security to the grounds, not to prevent riots. And they're simply not trained in that. Uh, it's, it's certainly not even not a priority. So, <clears throat> I've seen on the video Capitol Policemen doing things that they shouldn't have. Uh, and should be charged with doing. And I've seen an awful lot of other Capitol Police that were just trying to, um, just trying to save things. 
trying to prevent damage, mm-hmm. trying to prevent people from being hurt. Because that, that's what they're trying to do is to protect. So, you know, the, the last word on why things got out of hand, um, you will never get the answer to that question from the January 6th committee because they don't want to know. No. Meanwhile, we've got these poor people still sitting in behind bars, many of them still never having a trial, others being strong-armed into taking a plea deal just so they can get out of there. Uh, and yeah. where is the constitutional rights of these people being upheld? Uh, yet we have a, a sham show coming out of Congress uh, with rhinos teaming up with progressives, and it, it, it's... I don't even think there's 10 people watching it anymore. Are there? I haven't heard the ratings for last night. Um, I would be surprised. Mm. You know, true. one thing to think about, uh, and is What's that? If, if Trump or another Republican is elected president in 24, uh, and there is still a Republican majority in the Congress, there will be investigations. There will be investigations by the Republican Congress if it's elected this this November. But come 2025, if there is a Republican president and a Republican Congress, uh, one thing that people should demand they do is a detailed review of all the charges and all the evidence and all of the litigation against each one of these people that have been arrested in connection with January 6th. And I have no doubt that if there is that kind of a uh, commission and investigation, that the results will say, yeah, there's a bunch of these folks that did, in fact, do violence to the Capitol, and they should be punished. But there's a bunch of them who also did not, and yet they were punished, and they were all punished uh, excessively, at least as far as my understanding of the Constitution's definition of cruel and unusual punishment, uh, and there should be recompense for that. If the Republican majority and a Republican president does not do that, that will be a problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It may be the destruction of the Republican Party if they don't. There's, there's got to be answers, and we have to demand the answers from them. Uh, I want to change just a little bit because uh, we hear this clamoring for a stop to do business in China. And there's a couple of bills that you wrote articles on, one by uh, Senator Josh Hawley that he's proposing the Time to Choose Act. But there's also Senator Rubio and Tenney, the Turn Off the Tap Act. What's the difference between the two, and do they work hand-in-hand, or are they basically the same bills proposed by two different people? What's the story on this? No, they're complementary. Um, the federal government employs literally thousands of uh, individual consultants. Uh, the federal government also employs uh, hundreds of companies that provide consulting services, uh, McKinsey being the most notable. And McKinsey and a number of the other um, companies that provide consulting services, and uh, undoubtedly some number of the individuals who provide consulting services also do that for elements of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the Chinese military, 
uh, the companies that Chinese companies that um, are you know form the Chinese military complex and that is an obvious it amazes me that it has to be said but that is an obvious national security problem and Holly says let's get a law on the books that says number one you have to disclose it which they I think they are required to disclose it now but the, but that is a regulation it's not a law um, and it's not enforced vigorously but number one that you have to disclose it with severe penalties if you fail to disclose it and if you are in fact doing consulting work for a Chinese uh, interest uh, you can't get one penny from the federal government and I believe that nice. would have the effect of, of ending most, if not all, of the um, consulting work that these folks, including especially McKinsey, uh, have been and are doing for the Department of Defense in the U.S. government and various elements of the Chinese military-industrial complex uh, over on the other side of the world. So that's the Hollyville. The, uh, Claudia Tenney and uh, Marco Rubio, their bill is uh, <laughs> um, more general in application. It says you cannot be, whether you're a company or an individual, you cannot be involved in providing services to both the Chinese government and the U.S. government. And um, yeah, there is some duplication and some overlap between those two. But trust me, uh, both of them are very likely needed. Yeah, because <clears throat> people don't realize that anyone doing business, if you're not Chinese, or even if you are, any business that exists must have at least one member of the Chinese Communist Party on its board. Uh, so no matter oh, what, cool. the right. Chinese Communist Chinese Communist Party will know every single detail, your technology, your proprietary secrets. They will know everything about your business so if you're doing business with us yeah go ahead that that's the thing about the penny and and rubio um bill it it focuses on companies that have federal contracts with firms that have already been identified as um being part of the chinese military complex and therefore American companies are prohibited from doing business with them. The problem is the Department of Commerce, the Department of Treasury, uh, other elements of the um, executive branch that have the list of these prohibited firms, um, you know, it's like Ronald Reagan often said, the government's left hand doesn't know sometimes what its far left hand is doing. Um, You know, you, you have people and companies on these lists, but they're not enforced so that, you know, somebody in the government says, well, wait a minute, you've got this contract over here with AVIC, A-V-I-C, which is one of the big Chinese military industrial companies. So you can't have this contract that you've asked for with, um, you know, the federal government for whatever purpose it might be. So that's why I say the, the Kenny Rubio and Holly are are somewhat overlapping, but not entirely. Uh, and I think both are probably uh, needed. 
Well, what's the possibility of them being passed in this Congress? I would say slim to none right now. Maybe the Senate, not the House. And even if they passed both of, if they passed the House and the Senate, I don't think Trump or Biden would uh, would sign them. Yes, well, we'll wait and see because China is, you know, really rattling the saber out there. And unless we do something, uh, we're going to be in for a big pile of you know what. Uh, yep. One last thing before I let you go, because I know you've got your deadline to read. Uh, Kristen Sinema, the senator out of Arizona, uh, actually stood her ground in opposing yeah. this democracy is strengthening by casting light on spending in Elections Act of 2021. Only a Democrat could write something that long. If the name of the bill is that long, how many pages are in the damn thing? Um it's 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 a long bill. I haven't seen the actual page count on it, but Democrats have been pushing this this particular proposal uh, ever since the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision in 2010 that said uh, no, it's unconstitutional to bar the expression of political opinion by labor unions, uh, nonprofit foundations, and corporations. And when that decision was handed down. Um, Democrats and, and the progressive left, so-called progressive uh, left, just went nuts because, you know, th- their purpose is to silence political opposition, <laughs> not to encourage it. And they've tried ever since then through legislation um, that's been that's been called the Disclose Act um, in a clearly misnamed um, application. Uh, ever since then, and they've never been able to get it passed, and I don't think they're going to get it through this time. The thing that struck me about it was that Joe Manchin, who usually is, you know, uh, shows common sense about these kinds of issues, and you would expect him to oppose it. He's not. He's a co-sponsor. Cinema is out there all by her lonesome. She's the only Democrat in the Senate that's not co-sponsoring it. So... I have to admit, when she was first elected, based on her record in the House, you would have expected her to be a very reliable vote for Chuck Schumer, and she has been anything but. She's proving to be more of the old Reagan blue dog Democrat type then. I, I think that's um, that's probably true. Um, we'll see what happens after this November. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting because now I heard just before coming on air, there was a, a news flash that looks like Asa Hutchinson and Tom Cotton may be throwing their hat in the 2024 ring for president. And this should be very interesting, I'd say. Well, I think Senator Cotton is, um, um, I, they, it does not surprise me that he's thinking that. And, you know, he probably can come up with a reasonable case for why uh, he might be able to win. Uh, Asa Hutchinson, I I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know either. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But, Mark, we it has see. been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure, as always. People can find you at theepochtimes.com. Uh, your newspaper comes out weekly. And mine just came in the mailbox today, 
and I'm going to check out uh, the uh, Epoch TV on the latest uh, scandal that is being exposed. Absolutely. Annie, thanks a lot. Curtis, take it easy, man. All right, take care, Mark, and God bless. I right. certainly will. Check out... Check out Mark Tapscott at the Epoch Times or the Epic Times dot com. Um, I'm going to be sending you uh, the phone number to the next guest. Um, it looks like she. Oh, maybe she is here. Okay, it looks like yeah. it is. So let's welcome to the show our final victim of the day from the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> Want to welcome. And I know I'm going to mispronounce the last name, and I, I can mess up a wet dream if, I, if it's possible. Barbara Hafera. And I hope I said that correctly. She's the assistant director of the Heritage Foundation Center for American Studies. Good afternoon, Barbara. How are you today? Hi, Annie. Uh, it's actually Brenda Hafera, but you did get the last name correct. Oh, I don't know why I put Barbara. I, I, actually, I don't know why I said Barbara. It is Brenda on the show page. <laughs> I must no have my sister on Happy my mind. Here. I must have my sister on my mind because her name is Barbara. So forgive me, forgive me. Um, it, there's there's some articles and stuff that uh, uh, Tom told me to, to discuss with you, but I wanted to know exactly, and the people here to know exactly what is the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies. I was poking around, and I just want you to explain to people what you do and, and what it is. Absolutely. So the Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation is primarily focused on the principles of the American founding. So we have a civic education focus on defending those principles, on explaining those principles, and producing papers and scholarship on the American founding in particular, and how those ideas still apply today. You know, it's funny because I kind of, you know, tag myself as someone who is fairly well-rounded in education, if I can even say it, edified, educated in our founding. And whenever I cite the founding, I go back to uh, English common law being codified by King Harold. I would go back to the Bible itself, to uh, Plato's Republic, and then go over to the Mayflower Compact and the Virginia Declaration of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. But on your resources on that page, I came across a lot of other documents that I just did not know existed. And I'm going to be doing a little bit more homework because I, it's fascinating uh, that New Jersey recognized the right for women to vote as early as 1797. Oh, there's there's things that I just simply didn't know about. And I am amazed and I am ashamed that I, and I'm going to follow up on this. I'm telling you that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, One of the things you do talk about, and you wrote an article about James Madison, I can't even talk today. Mont- Why can I not even pronounce Mont- the last <laughs> Thank you very much. About the wokeness over there. And, you know, when I went to college in 19... 19- um, I noticed the progressivism that was being brought into colleges and universities. And it wasn't that bad back then. You could at least still have a debate and a conversation. You weren't being censured. Uh, you weren't being tossed off campus. 
you're able to have a healthy debate. Today, that's not happening. I mean, we saw this over the last decade just creeping into the education system, but it's got to the point where the very bastions of the founding of our nation, the conservative values and principles our founding fathers have become so warped, our history is being lost. What is going on over here, and why is this one school so important? Right. I think that's right, Annie. So, unfortunately, what has happened is some of the bad ideas in higher education have now spilled out into our broader culture and are now taking aim at the very homes of some of our American founders, which is really unfortunate. I think the worst case is James Madison, Montpelier. And the current state of affairs there is saddening. There are currently no exhibits at Montpelier on James Madison himself and his many and very important accomplishments. So James Madison was our fourth president. He was the father of the Constitution and the primary author of the Bill of Rights. And then he ensured the passing, the ratification of the Constitution by writing the Federalist Papers, of which Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and him were the authors. John Jay only write, wrote a couple because he got quite ill. But at James Madison's house, these accomplishments are really sidelined. His accomplishments are only talked about during a portion of the house tour and a brief video in the visitor center that also labels James Madison a slave owner and the Constitution racist. So unfortunately, many of the high points of our history, things that we should be proud of, are not given much attention at all at James Madison, Montpelier, and the predominant narrative is slavery, the institution of slavery, which is perfectly fine to talk about. It's part of our history, but it is the dominating force and there are many portions of that exhibit that are ideological. So there's a contemporary video in one of the exhibits, the Mere Distinction of Color exhibits, that says there are more defeats in pursuit of justice and fairness and equality in American history than there are moments of triumph, which is just an absurd claim. Slavery is something oh, that absolutely. contradicted our principles yeah, and something that we extinguished, which is a tremendous accomplishment. You know, the, this woke society is sending us 15 paces backwards when we were making such great progress uh, in, in equalizing our, I don't know if that's a quite word, but bringing our society into a situation where it was going to be Colorblind. And people are always going to have some prejudice of some form or other, whether they prefer chocolate ice cream over strawberry or whatever. People are human, and they're going to have a certain preference of who, where they live and who they associate with. It's natural. It's human nature. But to do this forced, where it's like, well, if you use the wrong pronoun, I'm going to have you arrested or I'm going to have you cancel cultured. Uh, heaven forbid you know, you don't accept the way I am because I definitely don't have to accept you. You, you. you must accept me, but I don't have to accept you because you're on the bad side, I'm on the good side. This has gotten so crazy. I mean, how do you know whether or not you can stick your nose out of your own house in fear of triggering mm -hmm. someone? Right. It's, it's really 
gone over the line. I would say we've become such a sensitive society. And it really is a disservice because we're a society that's built on freedom of speech. Um, on the idea, it's, it's our very first, in our very first amendment, that this idea that deliberation, you might actually have something to learn from your fellow citizens. And by engaging in a conversation with them, that's the way you do it. That's the way you deliberate and come to a more reasoned understanding of your own opinion and your own belief system. And so when you're refusing to do that, you're doing yourself a disservice, and you're also doing your fellow citizens a disservice by not engaging with them in a civil manner and allowing them the opportunity to learn from your opinions. And when we just shut down conversation or immediately get offended, I think that's what's lost is deliberation. And what's, what's lost is the ability to have a conversation and to be able to debate someone on their opinion civilly. And you don't need to start yelling at people or calling them names. You know, all you do is state where you are coming from and listen to the other side. And maybe you might find that common ground. Um, a couple of years ago, we were doing a back the blue rally for our local you know, police and fire department. And there was a counter-protest across the street. And it was being led by my neighbor, who literally lives across the street from me. And so I have always a civil conversation with her. And we don't always see things eye to eye, but we are friends. Well, she's since moved away, Mm -hmm. but we were friends. And we could sit down, have a cocktail together, a meal together, and have a conversation and exchange ideas. And the one thing she did, and I do have to give her credit for, she grabbed the guy that was in charge of the counter-protest and said, here's the one person you need to talk to. She brought him over and had the conversation with me. And when I listened to him and I said, are you aware that we stand for X, Y, Z? And this is what we're looking to do and to open the conversation. And just about everything he thought we were going to be against, he found that we were for. But until we have that conversation, how do we know where either side stands? Right, and I think part of what we're seeing now is this rise of social media has contributed to what you're talking about, where instead of engaging with your neighbors and having a conversation face-to-face, you're responding to some unknown faceless Twitter account, and you're much willing to to say something that you would never say to someone when you were face-to-face with them, and it just escalates very, very rapidly on social media. And this is not really a community in the sense of we all live together and we're neighbors and we might disagree fundamentally, but we can come together when it comes to raising money for a canned food drive or something like that. And so you recognize that the person that lives in the house next door to you, you might disagree with, but fundamentally they're a good person and you can work with them and you actually have more things in common than you have things that separate you. But when we are choosing our own communities on social media, that's not the case because we choose them based on arbitrary characteristics and we're only choosing the people that agree with us fundamentally. Well, it's basically the dehumanizing of the human being. Uh, it's basically Isaac, Isaac Asimov's iRobot. 
you are more comfortable with a non-human or a distance, you know, communication where you are an anonymous person. You're an avatar. You're anything else that you want to be. It doesn't mean now that you have any real skin in the game. You can do a stealth hit and feel proud of yourself causing harm to someone else that you couldn't care less about. And we are devolving into a dehumanizing society, which we need to start backing off on, which I think is something that you're trying to work with. Come back to the basic principles, what we stood for, and let's have that conversation. I agree. I hope so. And that's why I think what is going on at these presidential homes, for example, is so important because fundamentally these are the places that unite us. These are the places where these ideas were born, the concept of all men are created equal, where the ideas that were enshrined in the Constitution were thought of by James Madison. And these are the things that unite us as Americans. And we're not perfect, and those founders were certainly not perfect, but what they put forth was actually something that hadn't been seen in the history of humankind this concept that people really are capable of self-government. And they put forth this declaration and set up a process through which we could strive to more fully realize that those principles. And generations of Americans have contributed to that goal, to the American story. And that is something that we should be proud of and something that should be a source of unity And it's never going to be if the thing we're solely focused on at these homes is the bad points of our history. And we simply ignore the miraculous points of our history and don't approach what the founders did in a spirit of gratitude, of acknowledging the bad things, but deliberately turning towards all these wonderful things that they also accomplished. Well, what they also don't do is say, all right, fine, our founders, those that walked before us, saw these bad things, and they self-corrected. They said, all right, fine. Mm -hmm. The founders, when they were writing the Constitution, uh, they knew there was going to be a battle. They knew eventually the, the, the situation going on with slavery, it's going to come to a head. But what was more important than anything else, let's form the nation first. Let's solidify the founding of this nation. And then let's go down the road and then look at slavery so we can then eventually abolish it. They knew it had to be. It was just a matter of time, the right place, the right time. And throughout our history, wherever we had a problem, we looked at it and said, all right, fine, now is the time to approach and correct that situation. Women suffragette, um, reversing, uh, uh, oh, good Lord, I am having some major brain farts, uh, <laughs> prohibition. You know, we, we know where we've stumbled. It's all right, fine, we stumbled here, now let's correct it and let's move on. Uh, segregation, you know, we said, hey, we bleed all red. We are all human beings. We're all equal in the eyes of God. It's time now for the civil rights movement. We now have more interracial marriages and interracial children than ever in our history. Have we not found equality, but yet we are a racist? Critical race theory says we're the bad guys and all the victims are the good guys. 
Right, and I think it's very important when you're looking at these occurrences in history, such as the institution of slavery during the time at the founding, is you put these things in context, right? So it's not a good approach to simply say the founders didn't extinguish slavery when the Constitution was written, and so we are going to condemn them. You need to look at what they were dealing with and what they could accomplish practically. And at the Constitutional Convention, James Madison himself says, the real division here is not between the small states and the large states, it's between the North and the South. And the reason for that was because of slavery. And they were, there's not a single person at the Constitutional Convention who makes a moral argument in favor of slavery. They were all against it, perhaps with the exception of Charles Pickney. Um, but the reality was that there was no guarantee the union was going to exist. They had to reach compromises to form this place that we now call America. And they set up precautions so that slavery would be extinguished in the long run. But I think it's also important to remember that the Southern delegates were threatening to secede if they weren't granted these compromises on slavery. And if that would have right. happened, arguably no slave would have been freed because the South would have become its own nation and they would have kept the institution of slavery because the North would have had no influence on getting rid of that institution. Brenda, yeah. this is um, this is the, the co-host. You know, I'm I'm in and out of the black community, and they are they are always saying that well, you know, they were racist back then. The founders they said that blacks were only three fifths of a human, and and this is what they've been taught. They they don't understand that that was a compromise, and it wasn't about race. I mean, there's nothing in the Constitution that addresses race. It was all. Mm -hmm about representation and it's it's hard to get the truth across to people who have been brainwashed all their lives and the educational system um pounds into their heads that you you are not welcome in america because you're black um, you can't make it in america because you're black and america was never made for blacks and i say to them well how can you explain somebody like oprah winfrey or Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or a lot of just business, you know, successful black business people. You know, it, it's just, it's just, uh, it's horrible that they are taught at such a young age to be victims and to hate their own country and not to know their true history. I agree. We are not teaching our history well when we are teaching it at all, which is really unfortunate. And, as you mentioned, nowhere in the Constitution does the word slave or slavery appear. And even when it does, it's not, it's not about race, right? And Frederick Douglass, who is just an exceptional man, examines the Constitution. He actually changes his mind on the question of, is the Constitution pro-slavery or anti-slavery? And he writes this wonderful speech and looks at the text of the Constitution very carefully, looks at Madison's notes from the Constitutional Convention, and he says the Constitution is anti-slavery. It is an anti-slavery document. Right. And everyone actually understood this at the time. This is 
this is there was a lot of consensus on this point, and it's actually within the past 30 years or so, it's revisionist history to look at the Constitution and say that the Constitution is pro-slavery. Because things like the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade, all the delegates understood that if you eliminate the slave trade, you cut it off at its source, and you're going to, that's going to be the death of slavery. So they put in place these measures to ensure that slavery would be extinguished, and their goal of all men are created equal was for everybody. It was for all of mankind. It did not exclude women. It did not exclude people on the basis of race. This was a hope that you can come to this country and you can succeed, and there are not these barriers against you based on traits that you are born with. Man, there's so much more to talk with you about, Brenda. I mean, we're down to our last few minutes here, and you've got some great articles up on heritage, and one of them dealt with feminism, and that's that's another several hours just talking about that. <laughs> Having grown up at the height of glorious Sinem and burning the bras uh, to what it is devolved into, um, we are emasculating our boys and our men uh, at the stake of feminism, and yet at the same time, we're allowing transgender males to dominate women's sports, completely reversing all the work, hard work we did to pass Title IX. And the hypocrisy in the feminist movement is staggering. I think it is. It is really sad, and modern feminism has really gone awry. It is. Stopped. It's not a holistic view of the world. It is fundamentally now a branch of identity politics where they view things as a zero-sum game. And so, as you mentioned, The Boy Crisis, which is a book that was written by Warren Farrell and John Gray, and what is happening to our boys is just staggering. 41% of girls are proficient in writing by the eighth grade, which is still terrible, but that's compared to 20% of boys. 39% of men now graduate with college degrees at the same time that the earnings for those with a high school diploma are dropping. So our boys are really being left behind, and feminism is now treating women like an interest group rather than women who are situated in communities who care about their families, who care about their brothers, sons, fathers, the future fathers of their children. And this is happening to all of these men. And there are things that women can do to help alleviate this problem. And modern feminism doesn't have an answer for that. It takes an approach of maybe an earlier kind of feminism, of first-wave feminism, of looking at women as situated within communities. Well, Brenda, it has been a pleasure. People can find you at heritage.org and tell Tom to send you back. <laughs> we'll have some more fun. It was, I absolutely will. I enjoyed this very much. Well, God right. bless you and enjoy your weekend. All right. Brenda, you can find her over Thank at you. Heritage. Heritage.org. Curtis, we're down to our last couple of minutes here. Um, 
you have someone already booked for next Friday. You said and we're looking to get Lieutenant uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, Jennifer Carroll back on. Who's the other person? That's correct. Who's the other person? Yeah, I'm waiting for her. I'm, I'm waiting for her response, and I definitely have uh, Commander um, Demetrius Grimes, 96 Navy, oh, retired. All right, yep. excellent. And, uh, All right. I'm still trying to figure out is is it the epoch or epic time? <laughs> Both ways. Both ways, depending upon who you're talking to. So with that, I'll leave you with the song by my friend Gary Pecarella, Save America. And I say good night and God bless, and we'll see you next Friday, same bat time, same bat station. Until then, good night.